0: So,
1: what you are dealing with is
0: what any
2: good... You're welcome, Neil. About for the last hundred years. my welcome, hill.
1: This is so weird. Doing shows at these times It's just bizarre. It, I feel like it's 9 a.m. and it's 2 p.m. This is Hell. Noam Chomsky called This Is Hell sanity and talk radio so clearly, and sadly, Noam's gone insane. Not that there's any anything wrong with that, at all, in any way. This is Hell. This week we start by ruining your appetite with a discussion about Frankenberger's test tube vat in vitro or the far more business... Friendly cultured meat, that is, fake meat grown from the cells of cows. No, we're not talking about the Impossible Burger. That's a genetically engineered meat substitute that uses coconut fat, grounded, textured wheat, and pro- potato protein. And that is not cultured meat grown from an actual cow muscle. And that's the technology people like Google co-founder Sergey Brin are promoting as an option for meat in our climate-changed world, after contemplating fake meat and some rotten history, the number of Christians is dwindling in the U.S., and that means they've, there's been a consistent drop in those identifying themselves as evangelical. Yet evangelicals still flex a great deal of political power, especially over the moral parameters of any political debate in the U.S. This week's second guest was raised evangelical, and he'll explain what evangelicalism's critics get wrong about evangelicals. And one thing their critics definitely get wrong is that evangelicals can be pandered to and converted to support the liberal opposition born-again Christians view as evildoers working for the devil. So you can't pander to these guys. It's not going to do you any good. Following our scary conversation about creepy evangelicals and their scary politics, We'll share what's happening on this week's Patreon podcast, exclusively for subscribers at patreon.com slash hell, And then we'll go back to El Paso, site of the August 3rd massacre of 22 people at a Walmart. But why El Paso? What it, it, What is it about El Paso that would attract not only a mass murderer, but the white supremacy the killer embraced? We'll try to figure out what it is about El Paso that makes it such a target of violent even deadly hate and all of that is happening in only the first two hours of this week's show later this week we'll tackle the fight for changing water from a commodity to be sold for profit for the wealthy and into a safe public resource that all people have a right to access we'll also give you the historical context that's needed in order to comprehend exactly what is taking place in the UAW GM strike and of course we'll wrap up this week's show with a moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin. Bringing you bong-hitting journalism since 1996, this is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Alex, what's new by you, sir? Uh,
3: Is it good that it feels like 9 a.m. on a Tuesday, or Uh, bad?
1: Bad, because uh, usually 9 9 a.m. on a Saturday, I have not had a chance to eat anything yet, and now it's 2 p.m. on a Tuesday, and the only thing I've eaten is coffee, if you want to call that eating it. It is pretty thick. Water, and one hard-boiled egg, so they, yes. They got
3: cookies out there. I'm going to bring you a cookie. No, that's They're okay. only a little bit stale. Yeah, no, that's okay. I've had two of them.
1: <laughs> our guests this week are writer and historian Benjamin Aldous wergaft author of Meat Planet, Artificial Flesh and the Future of Food. Yes, we definitely will have to change the way we eat and what we eat now that we are living in the Anthropocene, our new geological epoch, when humans are the dominant influence on climate and the environment, but do we need fake meat that is actually grown from animal muscle? Do humans need meat at all? We'll consider the bigger questions of what they're calling cultured meat when we talk to Ben, who is currently a visiting scholar at Wesleyan University teaching social studies and history. He was a visiting scholar at MIT as well as a National Science Foundation postdoctoral fellow at MIT and a Mellon postdoctoral fellow at the New School for Social Research. So apparently he reads a lot of them books. Next we'll have the return of writer, teacher, and Translator Adam Kotzko Who is back on This is Hell To discuss his new N Plus One magazine article The Evangelical Mind Adam was born And immediately born again Into his evangelical family With parents who were On the leading edge Of the most radical aspects Of evangelicalism Adam embraced evangelicalism, which was the downfall of Adam being an evangelical. If you are like me, evangelicalism is a mishmash of contradictions with followers who don't act very Christian, but apparently that's the whole point of evangelicalism. That is, those contradictions are what evangelicalism is all about. It's definitely not about leading a life that emulates the life of Christ. Adam was on the show one year ago to talk about his then-just-published book, Neoliberalism's Demons. You can hear that interview from 2018 at our website thisishell.com and you should definitely listen to that talk because Adam's take on late capitalism is fascinating. After Adam, we'll have the return of another guest to This Is Hell. International journalist and researcher Andrew Kennis posted the alternate story how El Paso became a natural target for a brutal act of white supremacist terror. It's not like this is the first time that El Paso has been targeted by those who are filled with white supremacist hatred, but for whatever reason, that never came up in the corporate media's reporting on the Walmart massacre. We'll find out why El Paso has been the site of so much hate when we hear from Andrew, who is a member of the prestigious national research body, the National Council of Science. And Technology's National System of Researchers. As an invited scholar and research collaborator, Dr. Kennis affiliated a research stimulus grant awarded exclusively to his group with the National Autonomous University of Mexico. Uh, So we'll tell you how you can listen to that interview later on this week's show because right now it is currently available online. You know, I just skipped a sentence. Let me go back to that. Andrew was on our show back in March 2014 to discuss the Sinaloa drug cartel and their activities in Chicago, which brought scrutiny to DEA tactics in Mexico's drug war. Now, we'll tell you how you can listen to that interview later on this week's show because right now it is currently unavailable online. Spoiler alert, our interview with Andrew from 2014 is our classic archived interview we're sharing this week on Patreon with our subscribers there at patreon.com slash this is hell. And later this week, we'll talk to anthropologist Andrea Ballestero, who wrote the new book, A Future History of Water on the Fight to Change Water from Being a For-Profit Commodity to a Human Right. And we also have an interview with activist and retired automaker Thomas Adams, who wrote the monthly review article, A Tale of Corruption by the United Auto Workers and the Big Three American Automakers. We were supposed to have Thomas on a couple of weeks ago, but we had some technical difficulties, so we want to thank Thomas for rescheduling with us. All that, plus a moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin, which we'll tell you more about later on this week's show. So to sum up, fake meat, and do we need it? What we get wrong about evangelicals and what that means for the left? Why does El Paso experience so much hate and violence? And then later this week, water is human right for all instead of a profit-making machine for the rich? The history of UAW corruption that is leading to the UAW's strike against GM and some truth from Jeffy. And I find similarities between Greta Thunberg and... Okay, I'll give you a couple seconds to guess who I find her similar to. I'll find what Greta has in common with... Hope you are sitting down what Greta has in common with the Donald, President Donald Trump. Brave enough to be alive, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is hell, and Alex has this week's hangover cure.
3: This week's hangover... Yes, sir? (laughs) Uh, Sorry, yeah, something fell off. This week's hangover cure is spaghetti aglio e olio. According to the local.it article headlined, Italy's Best and Weirdest Hangover Cures, an article we'll be citing for the next few weeks as it has several cures we've never shared. This simple dish of spaghetti, oil, garlic and, optionally, chili can work wonders. After a heavy night drinking, you may feel like some comfort food, but instead of the usual grease, try this pasta recipe with oil in it. Carbohydrates can help to counteract feelings of nausea and restore blood sugar levels. And if you add the chili, the spiciness will kickstart your metabolism. There's uh, another bonus. It's such a quick and foolproof recipe that you could even whip it up as soon as you get home from a, after a party, allowing yourself to dodge the hangover altogether. Drunken spaghetti uglioliolios ugly, ugly. is like a bad idea. Uh,
1: <laughs> Can you imagine trying to cook spaghetti while you're drunk? I just can't. That would be uh, that the process wouldn't end and you'd find yourself asleep in front of the oven.
3: That makes this week's hangover cure. Spaghetti Aglio e olio, with special thanks to our Rotten History researcher and editor, Ronaldo Magaldi.
1: Does that surprise you in any way there? Yeah, I'm
3: sorry, it didn't say pasta fajoule.
1: <laughs> you are listening to God's favorite radio show, podcast, live stream, radio show, whatever you want to call it. Prove us wrong. This is hell. I hate the circus. I always have. In grade school, my class went on a field trip to the Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus, and I did not want to go. My parents were away on vacation in Las Vegas gambling the night away, so my... 11th grade brother was left in charge. It's the kind of thing you could get away with back in the day, and today would cause neighbors to scream, what about the children? And upon becoming aware of the situation, would immediately contact children and family services, ruining my parents' fun at the craps table a thousand miles away and our blissful week without adult supervision. With this lapse in supervision, I figured I could trick my brother into letting me stay home from school so I didn't have to go to the freaking circus. So I went in the bathroom, filled a glass with water, then made the worst retching and puking sounds I could make as I slowly and carefully spilled the water into the toilet so it sounded like vomit. However I had yet to take any radio show sound effects classes and my performance was less than convincing. I told my brother I didn't feel well, he explained how he knew I was faking, even saying how he had failed at the same fake puke trick with our mom and dad in the past. My brother has very similar vision to me, as we both suffer from the same neurological conditions, so when he asked me why I didn't want to go to the circus, I told him with an honesty I knew he would understand. I explained how going on field trips like these were a waste of time for me. I could barely make out with my impaired vision the performers, let alone whatever the hell it was that they were doing. He understood my frustration and exclusion. He knew I would be left out of the experience and that my attendance was pointless. He also knew that in order for the teacher to make me feel included, they would likely drag the handicapped kid out of the audience for special attention by the performers in an attempt to make me feel good, but in reality as my brother knew, it was never about the handicapped kid feeling good it was about themselves it was about the able-bodied relinquishing their guilt for their discrimination by treating us as props to prop up their fragile egos and he and I both knew that what that meant What the circus meant was also what being pulled up in front of the audience meant. It meant participation of clowns. Clowns would try to make me feel included by pulling gags and tricks that made me their target. It had happened before at another event where a clown was the entertainment, and I never wanted to go through the humiliation again. Humiliation that they thought was simply being comforting to the disabled kid. So my brother called the school, pretended he was my dad and was doing quite well gambling in Vegas, thank you very much, and got me out of going to the circus. I heard I hated everything about the circus. The animals that are seemingly punished for our entertainment, the jugglers performing tricks that I'm certain were entertaining in the 17th century but have lost their luster today. Acrobats and trapeze artists who seem to be doing nothing but distracting our gaze from whatever the hell else is happening in any of the confusing three rings all led by a ringleader which is a term we use for a criminal mastermind and i'm starting to think that's exactly what he is a villain obfuscating all the evil taking place in the tiny world he controls luckily many of these circuses have been closed down by or for humanitarian reasons well actually for animal rights reasons, but I think they should have been closed for being crimes against humanity long before they were ever shut down for animal abuse. But the distracting, obfuscating, cruel circus detached from reality that will never shut down is the one that affects me in much the same way as a real live circus, as the one that we live in every day. And that's the deplorable, awful media circus. The difference between the media circus and the animal rights abusing kind is... There's only one ring, and the media stares at the ring and speculates about that ring and obsesses over that ring until all this left is the dust and dirt kicked up by their unnecessary attention, and through that cloud of dust the media can barely see, let alone understand... What is actually happening in the big picture? The media circus of Russiagate distracted all those in the stands from everything else any resistance could have been railing around, like climate change or racism or police violence or misogyny or improving our democracy by getting rid of the Electoral College or immigration or any myriad of issues that could have experienced a real impact with all of that energy laser focused on real issues that are affecting us directly every day. And now the media have brought a new spotlight on the latest single individual celebrity the corporate elite media have allowed into their circus under their big top because Lord knows they don't want to discuss a movement, only an individual who they can celebrate and fit into one tiny spotlight. After Greta Thunberg made an impassioned speech at the U.N., the attacks started rolling in. She's rich, she's white, her parents created her as a media celebrity. They brought her to the U.S. on an expensive, although no-emissions, yacht that cannot possibly be the affordable and accessible answer to climate change we need, and thus those in in denial about climate change, and those who... Understand climate change is a real threat to humanity. Could both now attack someone for getting an important message to the elites at the UN who seemingly don't care if they destroyed the world, whose heels have never been held to the fire they started by turning our climate into a conflagration. The media circus focus, neoliberalism focus, the media circus's neoliberalism focus on the individual to embody all our political ideas today races from view, the more collective issues at play. Trump is not the singular problem who, if forced or voted from office, would suddenly bring us back from the brink of fascism. That's not a Trump agenda. That's the rights the Republicans' entire agenda as they race to their utopian horizon of fascism. Greta is not the individual leader of the Extinction Rebellion movement for, or for any mo- movement, but the liberal elite at the UN are never going to ask members of a leaderless movement to speak to their organization. That's not how we live under neoliberalism. It's always about the individual and never about the group. It's never about the idea or concept, just one person who they can force to embody everything about any political action that challenges the status quo that is destroying our planet. Whether that focus is on Greta Thunberg or that focus is on President Trump, we must stop focusing the media circus spotlight on one individual who they cast as a movement or, uh, or an idea. And until we stop obsessing on individuals and actually start seeing the burning forest through the smoldering trees that can no longer support our circus tent of a planet, a planet run by clowns and ringleaders. This is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show, Alex Jerry, coming up, we're talking fake meat grown from animal muscle the truth about evangelicals and why liberal pandering to them is pointless, the reasons why El Paso has played an unwilling host to so much hate, including the deadly massacre at Walmart in August, and later this week, water as a right versus being a commodity, the historical context behind the UAW GM strike, and a moment of truth. We'll have a question from hell later this week, so stay tuned in for that and to find out what we'll be giving to the listener who has the best answer to this week's question. Manufacturing Descent since 1996, this is hell. Fake meat grown from animal muscle is supposed to be the solution to all our food problems now that we are living with the challenges of climate change. But is it? Do we really need frankenmeat? Here to guide us through the wacky world of in vitro meat, writer and historian Benjamin Aldous Wargaft is author of Meat Planet, Artificial Flesh and the Future of Food. Welcome to This is Hell, Ben.
4: Thank you so much. Uh, thank you for having me here, Chuck. It's a pleasure. Um, and uh, I hope you can, you can hear me okay in hell, land.
1: Yes, I can hear you fine in hell. It's a little bit hot, but I can fe- hear you fine. Ben is currently a visiting scholar at Wesleyan University teaching social studies and history. He was a visiting scholar at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology as well as a National Science Foundation postdoctoral fellow at MIT and a Mellon postdoctoral fellow at the New School for Social Research. In other words, Ben smart. Ben, You can follow Ben on Twitter at BenWurgaf, that's W-U-R-G-A-F-T. And you can find out more about Ben at his website, benwergaft.org. You write of the new cultured meat hamburger that you were reporting on back in 2013. Quote, journalists have described the hamburger in question as a Frankenburger, test tube burger, a piece of vat meat. It was produced not by killing and butchering a cow, but through the expensive and laborious use of a well-established laboratory technique known as tissue or cell culture, first accomplished by the American embryologist Ross Harrison in 1907. After decades of use in scientific and medical research, tissue culture has only recently been used to produce what is sometimes called, with technical accuracy but zero gast- gastronomic zest, in vitro meat. One of the many promises attached to this new meat is that it could offer an alternative to industrial animal agriculture, perhaps completely replacing its environmentally damaging and cruel practices with pacific ones." To what extent do you think Frankenburgers are a market supply response to consumer demand motivated by climate change? Is this drive for Frankenburgers caused by global warming, or are there other factors that may be driving customers toward VAT meat?
4: Well, to respond to that wonderful and generous introduction and try to link it to your earlier uh, Speech about Greta Thunberg. I think that you hit the nail on the head when you say that there's something problematic about trying to make a single human being into the kind of face of an issue. That it's a tactical move that facilitates certain forms of strategy. If I understand you correctly, so lab-grown meat is similar in its way because it's a single technology. It's a single technology that isn't here yet. um, That may or may not be technically perfected and ready for the market in anywhere from a few to decades of years. And it's also something that um, claims to respond to a series of very, 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 big-ticket, large-scale, as you're saying, issues, one of them being climate change and its effect on animal agriculture, and of course, conversely, the effect of industrial animal agriculture on climate change, and also the sort of ethical footprint of how we treat animals in CAFOs and slaughterhouses by the billions each year. I think that the, the, the efforts to take a single technology and make it symbolically the solution for very, big, complicated problems has a kind of charisma about it, but it's also often misleading. Um, And in the book, I I am not either a proponent of nor a critic of lab-grown meat research. Um, I'm its ethnographer, I'm its analyst. um, I'm only its critic in the most generous sense of a critic as somebody who seeks to understand by, for example, reading closely. Um, But I think that um, the idea that we might produce a new kind of meat that allows us to continue consuming meat as well as having you know, <laughs> contemporary numbers of children, however one understands that, it has a seductiveness about it. It's a way of saying that actually growth isn't the problem, economic growth, population growth aren't the problems. Rather, the substrate through which we gratify our appetites is the problem.
1: I was just going to say that, that's a fascinating take, but also because uh, uh, the, I wanted to make sure that people understand, and this, I, what the thing I found fascinating about your book is that it is an inquiry, it's an in- investigation, it's, you're thinking about what, it, what fake meat means. It's not like, as you're saying, you're not writing a book that is in support of or condemns the, the idea of fake meat, you're just more interested in investigating the idea of fake meat. And you talk about this idea that there may be competing gen- agendas when there is this cultured meat put into process. What might happen when the bottom line on frank and meat is in competition with the public interest, as has been an issue within capitalism in the past?
4: You ask me what might happen when the bottom line of lab-grown meat, whatever we call it, uh, I think you've been calling it frank meat, cultured meat is, is my, my preferred term of art. There are other competitors. When that comes into conflict with the general interest. Um, well, One glib response is to say, nothing that doesn't already happen when the interests of various corporations conflict with the interest of the general public. But Uh, whether those be automobile companies, oil companies, cigarette companies, uh, whatnot. We're seeing interesting tests of this principle around guns these days, Um, uh, and we've seen it around cigarettes in the past. Um, But uh, one of the things I explore in my book is uh, the ways in which different interested actors, be they investors, be they entrepreneurs, be they scientists, think about really big picture systems and completing competing interests within them. And usually what they do is create sort of scenarios. Well, when this hits X will happen. And these are exercises of what we could call casual futurism. Um they are ways of trying to anticipate fantasized scenarios that no one can really establish ground truth about. Um, and they, as such, Rather than being interested because they might be accurate or not, these fantasies tell you a lot about the people who have them. So if somebody says, when lab-grown meat reaches cost parity with McDonald's hamburger, um, it will start to wipe out industrial animal agriculture uh, and believes that the two things can't exist simultaneously, um, that is more an interesting statement about what they're trying to do in their lives than it is an interesting statement about what's actually gonna happen in the future. Um, You know, as is so often the case, um, science fiction is useful as a mirror on contemporary reality, rather than as a set of guiding predictions about what's to come. Um, I I, I know that I'm sidestepping the gut of your question. The question is, uh, I think, if I understand you correctly, about potential conflicts between corporate interests and public interests, yeah?
1: That is correct, that is correct, sir.
4: Yeah, so uh, what I would say is that many of the people who are heavily, literally, and figuratively, morally invested in a future of lab grown meat believe that um, the future of progress is something that we can get through a combination of technology and consumer behavior in a free market. Um, they have, for various reasons, given up on using politics or different kinds of social organizing and activism to change things. Uh, many of them are, in a certain way, refugees from animal protection activism um, and are guided by principles that I think are often very honorable. But they have decided that because activism is ineffective or too slow, that they want to uh, invest their hopes in, again, technology in the market. Um, and that means that many of the, the the way they might interpret public interest is different from the way somebody with a, a more sort of uh, democratic accounting of change might, might think of public interest. Uh, they're not thinking of a world in which there are a series of public debates and even Votes regarding how one might try to um, regulate lab groom meat or whether or not people want it. They think that, um, in the words of one of them, um, unethical options should simply be removed from the reach of consumers.
1: Do you think so? To what extent then does in vitro meat, cultured meat, whatever you want to call this uh, meat that it's grown from cow muscle, to what extent uh, does this technology erase any political agency when it comes to confronting our challenges with the environment and with the food that we eat and the process that we go through in uh, producing that food?
4: Okay. So if I understand the question again, it is, um, to what extent is lab-grown meat an apolitical and possibly even anti-political approach to a set of problems that we might agree are intrinsically political? Exactly. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah. uh, Well, I don't want to sound hard on these people, (laughs) and uh, this way of framing the question feels to me... um, if you don't mind my saying, slightly unfair to some of the people I write about in my book, because um, they're often not people of ill will in any sense, um, but they are people who tend to view these what they would maybe call major global challenges and sort of logic of the of of vocabulary of a TED conference as things that are technical rather than political. So a lot of the work that I do in Meet Planet is to try to reinfuse the political character uh, back into uh, food, climate, meat itself, um, the question of how technologies emerge, so that uh, the community of people who are trying to make lab-owned meat a reality can have what I think are sharper conversations about what's at stake here, a pun absolutely always intended.
1: You write that cultured meat may someday be food, but right now it is part of what investors in Silicon Valley often call the food space, an area of enterprise and investment that links food production and supply, environmental sustainability, human health, and the welfare of non-human animals. The food space is one in which venture capitalists have been very visibly active in recent years. More than possibly even consumer demand, does financialization incentivize the production of cultured meat?
4: Of course it does. Of course it does. So one of the things that, that um, I'm sure you already pick up on and that uh, perhaps those who've been following the conversation about Black Greenweed have already noticed is that it tends to be a conversation between elites and it tends to be a conversation held at places like technology conferences, which many people don't have access to, but where people empowered elites, like, of course, myself, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not alien to that world, um, get to have conversations about what they think the public interest is and about what they think consumers should have. So in that sense, the, the sort of imaginary space, to use that metaphor again, in which lab-grown meat has been thought up, is one... Uh, in which there are only certain points of access and that many people would never get to see. And it's also one in which people with access to large amounts of investment capital um, get to talk to people whose ideas seem to offer traction on major problems, but a form of traction, um, in keeping with the general tenor of this conversation, that doesn't have a lot to do with challenging the way business is normally done.
1: So you also point out that uh, the word space has narrower and more specific historical connotations, conveying, conveying not mere dimensionality, but also an in, in uh, intimation of the frontier And you you talk about this word space And you talk about this word emerging And I, we'll get to that later But I just found that those discussions really fascinating You write that frontiers are places different po- Human populations have gone over the centuries In order to extract resources Some have argued that without frontiers Capitalism itself could not function For capitalists need fresh natural resources And new opportunities for the profitable investment of capital So can cultured meat save capital capitalism from the challenges climate change poses? Because I'm really curious if uh, that's what the, the right is trying to do, or that's what corporate interests are trying to do, that the pursuit of cultured meat is not necessarily about saving the planet or feeding the public, but it's about saving capitalism. Can cultured meat save capitalism?
4: <laughs> You're asking the question that I um, I didn't pose in my book that, w- that was hovering over my shoulder the entire time I wrote it. Um, which is what if this is a fantasy to say such as a fantasy, it's also a real technology in the making, but what is this? What if a future of cultured meat is a a fantasy about saving growth and by saving growth, saving capitalism under whose aegis we've experienced much of our growth as a planet. Um, If you think about it as a way of saving consumer behavior and saving the growth of consuming populations and of a consuming middle class in places like China and India, where the middle class has been burgeoning. Sure, I think you could make that argument. I think that's convincing. Um, I, I don't think that's all it is. So I, I have in my book shied away from arguments in which I say, "Well, cultured meat is somehow the spirit of of, of capitalism. It's it's Marx's Grundrisse made out of protein and fat." I, I never quite go there because I don't think it's as simple as that. I think that many other things motivate the people who are using you know the precious days and years of their lives to try to make this a reality and I think that it embodies certain utopian potentials that are positive. Um, uh, I happen to be a socialist and somebody, compelled by many critiques of capitalism. um, But I I also try to separate some aspects of cultured meat work from the matrix of things that I think are trying to sort of keep capitalism on its, its
1: defibrillator. You kind of answered this question that I already had prepared, but I, I I want to kind of reword it because I was going to ask, is cultured meat an expansion of capitalism within our food supply, giving capitalism more and more control over what we eat? But I guess what I'm really trying to figure out is how does moving from an animal meat-based food to non-animal meat, if you will, this cultured meat, give corporations what's the impact on corporate power by doing this does it change in any way the corporate power over what we eat after all corporations already control what we eat through these uh, CAFOs through these gigantic feeding operations so how would this have any impact on control corporations have over our food supply if it has any uh, impact whatsoever
4: well thank you for that so the question is uh, does this in any way shift the amount of control Big Ag and and Big Food have over our everyday diets, and um, it, it, to some degree, you've answered the question. But it also relates to your earlier question about frontiers um, in important ways. Uh, the, the, the one idea of the frontier in capitalism is that it's where one goes to get new resources um, when existing substrates uh, run dry. So. In, in, in economic theory of, of Ricardo, we see this kind of idea that one might proceed from field to field as the field gets farmed out, or, or from mine to mine, from oil or later, from oil field to oil field. And you, you have this image of people uh, trying to move from technology to technology eventually, as old technologies, in a sense run out Um, the food industry the meat industry for many years has been on the technical substrate of of antibiotics of sub therapeutic dosages of antibiotics used to increase the rate at which animals bulk up uh, as they age towards adulthood and um, Baren has written a beautiful book about this called big chicken Um, in recent years it seems like many companies like Purdue have started to back off the use of uh, antibiotics uh, to achieve these kinds of great weight gains to achieve um, Uh, earlier slaughters allowing them to produce more meat, Uh, but they haven't done this because of the complaints about antibiotics, to the best of my knowledge. They seem to have done this because the efficacy of antibiotics to, of of increased dosages of antibiotics to increase weight gain towards slaughter faster has ebbed. So um, one doesn't always know exactly what reasoning is guiding a particular corporate practice but this is that's that's uh, in a way an aside the the main question is about uh, control and the answer is you might have different companies controlling um, the meat that we eat you might have a different um, uh, a different office within uh, Purdue you might have tight Ty- you know a different division of Tyson guiding things but Uh, And you might have an entirely different set of companies, uh, the many companies at the startup scale trying to make lab-grown meat right now. I don't see this as an important uh, shift in who controls meat production. Um, What's really critical is meat, is the regulation thereof. And at the moment, the FDA and USDA have a kind of agreement to regulate emerging lab-grown meat jointly. Um, That's another good pun, jointly. Um, but we don't yet know exactly what that process is going to look like. And um, it it raises a lot of questions. Uh, We've recently had a story about um, the pork industry being able to to effectively inspect itself, um, which is the kind of troubling thing that we always need to be on the lookout for. And I think that if the startups that want to produce lab-grown meat want to do things right, not that I am, of course, an arbiter of what's to be done right. Um, they should start to work towards maximum transparency with the public. They should invite journalists and investigators into their labs if they possibly can. They should, um, and this is, this is the thing that is most centrally problematic about the startup venture capital backed model for the purposes of creating a new food technology that consumers' trust, because it involves a lot of blackboxing, it involves a lot of creating intellectual property, which um, you don't share, but the sharing of which might go a long way towards establishing trust with consumers and maybe secondarily with researchers and writers like myself.
1: And I was thinking when I was reading your book, is this the further commodification of food, but food has been completely commodified already, so does this have any impact on the commodification of food?
4: Well, I mean it represents a new chapter in it, but I don't think it's all I don't think it's radically different. I mean, uh, meat is something that has been uh, turned into not only a commodity, but in some senses a fetish for many, many generations. Um, I I think that lab-grown meat, if it it turned out to be successful, would be an interesting new chapter in the effort to make meat ever more available. So it would be potentially a new story, even though at the moment it's ferociously expensive to produce, if it were produced at scale, it would be a new chapter specifically in the sub-story of, of, of cheap meat um, uh, of meat that's produced in mass quantities. And that is very available That is to say that, um, denizens of the first world like myself, um, if we didn't give a whit about our health could eat it at every meal because its cost has come down so much. Um, and, uh, in the book, I try to talk a little bit about different historical visions of how meat has been. And, uh, I try to say that lab-grown meat seems to come out of a very contemporary late 20th, early 21st century vision of meat as something that's bountiful, rather than something that's valuable and scarce. And some of the other kinds of actors around meat that we talk about in the book are people, they're often sort of neo-agrarians. Um, uh, hippie hippie farmers who are fans of hippie farming. They would like to see meat be consumed, but to be rare and expensive
1: and you talk about a promotional film back in a press conference back from two thousand and thirteen, and how one of the proponents who is in the film of uh, this cultured meat states that this could be a truly human uh, truly transformative stage in human evolution how might we change as humans by going to cultured meat? Because that really frightened me because I don't, you know, you mentioned how Sergey Brin, the co-founder of Google, is, or at least was interested in this technology. And it started making me worry that he's figuring out different ways of making money off of this technology, just like he figured out different ways that were kind of, hidden ways in which Google were making money off of Gmail, were making money off of Google, the search engine in general. So what kind of impact, what kind of evolutionary impact do proponents of cultured meat say we might experience with this transformation to artificial meat?
4: Right. I don't think you need to worry about um, digestible transponders collecting your search data as you eat a lab-grown burger. I was fearing,
1: fearing like, smart food. Like, all of a sudden they decided, hey, you know what, we figured out how your brain can be functioning better by just adding this to our meat.
4: Well, yeah, it's like the smart waters and the smart this and the smart that. Well, so there are fantasies about making lab-grown meat into a sort of a functional food. And one of the early um, fan groups, if you will, Cloud-grown meat doesn't have consumers, but it does have fan groups uh, at the moment. One of the early ones back in like 2012, 2013, were bodybuilders who had the idea that they might be able to get meat that was engineered so that its amino acids were perfect for their particular bodies. Um, you now, I should say that most cloud-grown meat is not genetically modified. It's not a genetically modified food. Even though it's made through a kind of radical intervention in biotechnology through tissue culture, um, uh, it doesn't need any genetic engineering necessarily, although it, it, it would be amenable to it in various ways. Uh, so, but it, the question is about our evolution, um, which is a very tricky term. As you know, it's a term much abused. Uh, it has a particular meaning in evolutionary, in certain evolutionary theory. Um, and then it has lots of casual uses that, that are often taken to mean our progress or our future history. Um, evolution obviously functions on, on timescales that transcend the immediate application of a particular technology, as in a case like this. But it's true that the language of evolution is often used in two ways in trying to describe cultured meat. One of those ways is in a, a defense of human carnivory. Um, and in this short film, which is still up on the internet, people can go and watch it. Um, I think it's still up at culturedbeef.net. Um, there's a short film made by a LA based documentary company. They're really great people. I think their name is the Department of Expansion. Um, they made the short promotional film for Mark Post's hamburger demonstration in 2013, in which certain characters, like the um, paleo anthropologist Richard Rango, Spoke and they made claims about the possible evolutionary role played by Newt in our acquisition of modern human physiology, cognition, behavior. Um, and then the, the other the other side of the coin is that many people like to talk about our possible moral evolution as a species. And uh, many advocates of lab grown meat think that there is such a thing as identifiable moral progress. They believe that, and they believe that they can know what it is. They believe that it involves uh, expanding the moral circle in which we contemplate good action and uh, imagine in in capital letters, the the good, in philosophical terms, that we, in the expansion of the moral circle, we would would encompass non-human animals in the circle. And um, that they think that this is part of our sort of moral evolution. Um I'm not uh, necessarily uh, anti this view per se, merely uh, somebody who would observe that um, these are contestable things they're not they're not obvious and clear, and projections of future technologies often involve a scenario building in in which we imagine that we really know the trajectory of development of, say, a given technology or a given social trend, or that we can create technologies that can create social trends. That's one of the great fantasies of traction that Silicon Valley has found itself like over the last ten years and year.
1: Is cultured meat in any way an attempt by industrial food producers to continue to have an industrial meat industrialized meat making process? Is cultured meat an attempt? at saving the meat industry as electric cars are about saving the personal transport industry?
4: Well, it's a simple question, but I think that the answer is, is simple and that the original interest from this doesn't come from big meat. It may be that the adoption of this technology by big meat has behind it certain executives' fears about um, what to do as water and land um, dry up. Uh, or are involved in the case of land. Um, but uh, I don't think that we can establish a kind of a neat, causal relationship in which this is me trying to save itself.
1: Can you imagine any ethical concerns that we might have over cultured meat. After all, vegetarians might say that this might be a way in which they can uh, circumvent all of their issues, all of their challenges when it comes to cultured meat. So can you imagine not just amongst vegetarians, but others, any ethical concerns over cultured meat? At one point, you talk about how people kind of cringe at the idea of fake meat, but we have so many other fake things in our food supply right now. Why Why this? Yeah. Why, why would this make any difference?
4: Well, I'm not sure that it would. But so I think that one of the things that happens is that um, we, we are very, very unclear thinkers as creatures. And that's one of the things that I think each planet is there to explore. We are not clear with ourselves about our appetites. We're, we're bad self-knowers about what's in our food or about what we're hungry for or about why we're hungry for it. And we're often not interested in self-knowledge about these things, uh, about things that, that uh, go on at the level of our appetites. We just sort of want them. And in its kind of Epimethean um, the sort of Freudian way, the planet is interested in exploring these things. Um, what I what I I tend to think is that people um, uh, often confuse a strong negative gut reaction or a reaction of disgust with uh, a kind of an ethical reaction, and there's uh, a kind of a craft. To getting people to think about the relationship between disgust and moral response and to, to try to slowly disentangle them, see if they're the same, see if disgust really is about a moral response, or, or, or maybe it isn't. Um, they're advocates of thinking that there's a sort of a wisdom of repugnance, like Leon Cass, um, and I tend to think that um, they are allowing um, there's something rather unanthropological about that view. It's like saying, rather than ask why something is disgusting, we're going to just assume that there's a wisdom in the disgust reaction. But uh, I, I think certainly that uh, consumers have gotten used to various things that they fu- used to find disgusting with the The troubling presence of sushi in many saran-wrapped containers in many supermarket shelves in in North America is testimony to this. Raw fish was, for many in the early 80s, kind of gross. And now it's kind of not gross. Um, And I, 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 I think that food illustrates something very curious about us as creatures, which is that we have an odd sense of temporality we tend to naturalize and eternalize things we're familiar with and kind of stretch them out in time so that they've always been there. When you think about pizza, which is you know, a, a, a phenomenon, the contemporary pizza with a tomato sauce on it must necessarily be a, 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 a phenomenon of the modern world after the Colombian exchange that brought tomatoes to the old world. Um, and yet we treat it as if it's always been there and always will. So so food seems kind of timeless to us, and yet it, it's intimately marked by time.
1: Ben, we're going to try to reestablish on the phone line. It just started breaking up a little bit. We're going to reestablish. I've got a couple more questions for you, and we'll get right back to you. We, You are listening to This Is Hell, and we are speaking with writer and historian Benjamin Aldous-Wergaft. He is author of Meat Planet, Artificial Flesh and the Future of Food. Ben is currently a visiting scholar at Wesleyan University teaching social studies and history. He was a visiting scholar at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology as well as a National Science Foundation postdoctoral fellow at MIT and a Mellon postdoctoral fellow at the New School for Social Research. You can follow Ben on Twitter, at Ben Wergaft, that's W-U-R-G-A-F-T. And you can find out more about Ben at his website, again, com. So do you have any sense, do we have any real sense of how much better cultured meat production would be for the environment compared to eating real meat or how much better it would be for uh you know our own human health our own well-being do we have any idea of what the impact would be yet of cultured meat
4: we have ideas about it but we don't have fact and um that's something that we can't have yet simply because it hasn't emerged. I want to frame this in terms that are as kind to cultured meat as possible. Um, there's a lot of, of efforts to kind of judge whether or not this would be good ahead of time. Uh, and uh, often it's framed in certain ways that would lead us to just reject it off the top uh, uh, of the bill. So if somebody told you this hamburger cost $300,000 to make, you would say, that's ridiculous, that'll never work. And of course that's true, but the, there's a huge difference between something that's made as a kind of a test, um, and entailed a huge amount of investment in laboratory equipment and personnel and something that benefits from economies of scale and a huge amount of difference between a huge supercomputer like ENIAC and a smartphone, um, uh, that's, you know, 60 years later. Um, so, uh, There are many ways in which early projections about lab-grown meat, whether they end up being positive or negative for the prospect of lab-grown meat, have to be taken with a major grain of kosher salt. And the uh, way I like to think about it is that um, while we do have a series of um, life cycle assessments of lab-grown meat... um, some of them favorable, some of them not, Um, we should understand that they're all hypothetical. Um, I I would like to see lots more work done that takes into account what the um, raw materials, say sugar to feed yeast, et cetera, would would be like. Um, So the viability of lab-grown meat from the standpoint of producing the parts that go into it. I was recently giving a talk at a conference and a woman in the audience said, but the impossible burger and beyond meat already circumvent industrial agriculture. And shouldn't we just eat that? And I said, no, 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 no. I mean, whatever you make, it requires ingredients and those ingredients themselves have to be grown. And almost inevitably that's done industrially. So, um, the, the fantasy of getting off of industrial ag is one that, that, that often circulates. And I, I often point people towards, um, The food historian Rachel Loudon, who's written really, really terrific things about what's good and bad, but really what's good about industrial food production, Um, and and sort of an appreciation of this way of producing and consuming food, which has enabled so many of us to live on this planet. I'm not quite as sanguine about it, I think, as as Rachel is, uh, in part because uh, I'm sort of an anti-growth guy, but... uh, I I think she's articulated that position better than, than anybody else.
1: Just a couple more questions for you. You write, the preferences for solving problems using technology is very often a political preference, even when it appears to ignore politics. What do you see then? What is revealed to you as the politics behind cultured meat? Is cultured meat a reflection of some leftist or right wing or centrist or something outside of that spectrum politics? What kind of politics does it reveal to you?
4: Okay. Well, the way it would reveal politics to me is through interviews, is through work with human subjects whom I encounter in in my field work and who tell me their stories and trust me with their stories. Some of them are believers in the free market. Some of them call themselves capitalists. Some of them identify with a kind of Promethean version of capitalism. Others identify with a kind of Promethean version of, of socialism. <laughs> this is sort, sort of like the, the socialism of Engels' critique of Malthus, uh, in which you, you, you imagine that you really can uh, harness the power of production to outstrip dem- the, the increases in demand population. Uh, I, I myself um, uh, generally think that uh, all of this seems... Inadequate to the realities of producing a new technology within uh, startup economics, and that I'm I'm usually most troubled by the people who think that technologies are politically neutral, that technologies don't entail some kind of relationship with politics, and uh, as your question anticipates, uh, the, the the notion that a new technology somehow has nothing to do with the political character of the problem it seeks to solve strikes me as vacuous. Um, Much as uh, ideas about self-driving cars intersect with a wide variety of planning, regulatory agencies, um, government bodies, not to mention uh, industries, just so lab-grown meat intersects with a wide variety of things. And the question of food is not just a question of government regulation, like the regulation of the safety of a product, but also the question of the morality of food supply, which is a conversation that's hard to have in a country like the United States, where we allow large areas to remain food deserts. Uh, If we embrace the idea that uh, sufficiency of diet, uh, that social question is also a political one, And embrace the idea that people, we could maybe talk about people's rights to uh, a, a, a a sustaining diet, then we might ask very different questions about meat and how we get it.
1: One last question for you, Ben. We've been speaking with writer and historian Benjamin Aldous wergaft author of Meat Planet, Artificial Flesh, and the Future of Food. You can follow Ben on Twitter at Wergaft, and you can find out more about Ben at his website, BenWergaft.org. One last question for you, Ben, and it's what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. And I had a really great question from hell lined up for you. Until last night when I'm watching the national news, and then I pick up the New York Times this morning, and there's the headline, is red meat bad for you? New research says you can't prove it. So, Ben, is the whole point of uh, cultured meat completely moot now that we know, hey, red meat's not even bad for us?
4: Well, if it were moot,
1: we're missing a great pun because it might be moot. But Jesus, no. your puns are driving me crazy.
4: <laughs> no, so, so in fact, so I'm trying to get myself banned from the airwaves here. But the, the, so the, the 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 article was misleading, I thought, because they're actually, if you read it, it, it shows you that. The, and we're talking for the audience. We're talking about this New York Times article that. Uh, goes through recent research into, I suppose, the epidemiology of um, heart disease among red meat eaters. And one of the things that it looks at is the um, question between researchers of how to read different kinds of studies. And one reading of the new studies is simply that um, they don't actually show you that eating meat is bad for you. They just show you that it isn't worse than we thought, that <laughs> that it. That it, it that we already know about the, the, the risks that it, it that increases. Uh, I, I, I don't think that that story should be the one that we read the story of cultured meat through. Although some advocates of lab-grown meat think it would be better for us in all kinds of ways. It isn't about personal health. This is, this is a story about large scale systemic issues uh, about the environment and about how we treat non-human animals. And um, the reasons to not eat cheap meat, to not eat industrially produced animal flesh, uh, in vivo animal flesh, uh, have to do with the way it's uh, wrecking the planet. And if you're an advocate for animals, uh, sort of wrecking us and them morally. Um, So I I think that, that we should avoid grilling that particular red herring. (laughs)
1: <laughs> ben, you are not going to get banned. Don't worry. We'll have you back on when your book comes out in paperback with additional information. And I'm going to keep watching for your writing online as well. We have been speaking with writer and historian Benjamin Aldous-Wergaft, author of Meat Planet, Artificial Flesh and the Future of Food. Follow him on Twitter at ben Wergaft. Find out more about Ben and his website, benwurgaft.org. Thank you so much for being on our show this week. Like I said, this book is really fascinating. I love reading about topics that we never have discussed on the show before. That's what this is because I get to learn. So thank you. Thank you so much for helping me learn about fake meat.
4: Thank you so much. This is an absolute honor and a pleasure. You ask such great questions, and um, this has been so gratifying.
1: Uh, Thank you so much. That's very kind of you. Thank you. Live from land stolen from the natives, this is Hell. To its critics, evangelicalism doesn't make any sense. How can you be pro-life but support killing people through the death penalty and backing war. Why, if evangelicals refer to themselves as Christian, do they not act in a charitable Christian way with love for all their fellow humans occupying this planet, we'll find out what we get wrong about evangelicals, and with that knowledge, what we should think about evangelicalism politically when we have the return of writer, teacher, and translator Adam Kotsko, who will be on to discuss his new N Plus One magazine article, The Evangelical Mind. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, Gory, rotten history. This week in Rotten History on October 3rd, 1935, 84 years ago this week, forces of Benito Mussolini's fascist Italy, numbering more than a million, invaded Ethiopia, a date that will live in Rastafari history. The Italians, augmented by fighters from Libya and Eritrea, were armed with state-of-the-art aircraft, tanks, artillery, and chemical weapons. Ethiopia's Emperor Haile Selassie Meanwhile, was stuck with a defense force of some half million poorly trained soldiers, some with adequate vehicles and weapons, while others had only bows, spears, and swords. The Ethiopians were quickly routed, and Mussolini returned to Rome, where he strutted before ecstatic crowds, loudly declaring a new Roman empire. And... east africa but the italian occupation of ethiopia would fall apart within a few years after mussolini joined forces with nazi germany and promptly led his own country into military disaster see i told you joining sides with nazis is a really bad idea ethiopia would regain its independence in 1947 and would cite a death toll of more than 700,000 people from the italian occupation this had to really suck for Rastafari globally, as their religion believes in a single God, Jah, and that Jah took human form in the form of Jesus Christ. But for many Rasta, they have already experienced the second coming of Christ in the form of Haile Selassie, who ruled Ethiopia from 1930 through 1974 other Rasta see Selassie as not the Messiah, but a prophet who fully recognizes inner divinity and inner divinity that all Rasta have as Jah is in all of us. When your Messiah's army gets routed by the Italians, it's probably time to re-examine your religion. And again, that's gotta suck for a true believer. On October 5th, 1948, 71 years ago this week, A massive earthquake struck in the middle of the night in what was then Soviet Republic of Turkmenistan near its capital, Ashgabat. It caused widespread devastation, not only in Turkmenistan, but also across the border in Iran, knocking down buildings, derailing trains, and otherwise causing major damage to infrastructure. And as this was at the beginning of the Cold War, you got to wonder if the Soviets thought it was some kind of nuclear attack by the U.S. Estimates varied on the number of casualties, but some cited figures as high as 100,000, which would have been one-tenth of the Soviet Republic's population. Red Army soldiers were quickly sent in to help with the relief effort and electricity in Ashgabat was restored within a week, but the recovery was hampered by logistical problems and a lack of resources, especially given that Soviet censorship prevented local news media from reporting the full extent of the damage. Unfortunately for those living within the Soviet Union, disasters like earthquakes were fake news and not to be discussed as they revealed the weakness of the state and its leaders, which is kind of like what fake news is here in the states today, reporting on disasters that make the Trump administration look weak and vulnerable. So at least Trump has got that in common with Joseph Stalin. Also on October 5th, but in 1966, 53 years ago this week, in Monroe, Michigan, on the shores of Lake Erie, south of Detroit, a breeder reactor at the Enrico Fermi nuclear power station suffered a malfunction in its sodium cooling system, later attributed to a chunk of zirconium. I just thought it was for crappy engagement rings, zirconium that came loose inside the works and blocked the flow of liquid coolant. And I have cousins who work there, and they never discuss what happened, only reminding me that nuclear energy is clean and safe. This led to a partial meltdown of two fuel elements inside the reactor, which could have caused it to belch radioactive contamination for miles outside the power station. And that is one burp you do not want to smell. According to the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission and my cousins, no such release of radioactivity occurred, but repairs to the reactor took four years. The the results were satisfactory, and the weren't satisfactory, I should say, and the uh, reactor was decommissioned in 1972. The accident would be chronicled in a 1975 bestseller by John G. Fuller titled We Almost Lost Detroit, which inspired a song of the same name by the singer and poet Gil Scott Heron, which is fantastic, as well as a response titled We Did Not Almost Lose Detroit, published by the Detroit Edison Company. (laughs) My guess is Gil Scott Heron's version is way better than Detroit Edison's because, to be honest, I've never heard any music done by any utility company that I actually liked. Right, call me close-minded. And that's Rotten History and This Is Hell coming up on this week's This Is Hell. The truth about evangelicals and why liberal pandering to them is... Pointless. The reasons why El Paso has played an unwilling host to so much hate, including the deadly massacre at Walmart in August. And later this week, water as a right versus being a commodity. The historical context behind the UAW GM strike and a moment of truth. We'll also have a question from hell later this week, so stay tuned in for that and to find out what we'll be giving to the listener with the best answer to this week's question. I'm your bitter, blind, broke Gaptooth Radio Show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry, live from Late Capitalism, where we know the price of everything but the value of nothing. This is Hell. Critics don't understand evangelicalism. It's many contradictions and what appears to be followers acting in very unchrist-like, unchristian ways here to help us come to grips with evangelicalism so the left reacts to them in a more effective way. Writer, teacher, and translator Adam Kotsko returns to This Is Hell to discuss his new N plus one magazine article, The Evangelical Mind. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Adam.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: Adam was on this show one year ago to talk about his then-just-published book, Neoliberalism's Demons, on the political theology of late capital. And his take on late, ca- late capital is fascinating. You can find that interview at thisishell.com. And you can find out more about Adam at adamkotsko.com. That's K-O-T-S-K-O. And you can follow him on Twitter at Adam Kotsko. So you write that evangelicals were at the forefront of the culture wars of the 80s and, 70, or 80s and 90s. They were crucial to the governing coalition of George W. Bush, Through their in, though their influence on uh, Republican <laughs> politics was briefly overshadowed in the Obama years by the less explicitly religious Tea Party movement. Evangelicals have reemerged as the most loyal supporters of another popular vote-losing Republican president, this time decidedly not one of their number. Although Trump's selection of the evangelical Mike Pence as his running mate nodded to the group's king-making power. You mentioned that they are dwindling in number, evangelicals. So how and why are evangelicals re-emerging? Are, are cultural issues on the right gaining more attention than economic issues again? Is that what's compelling them towards being in having a more power?
2: Yeah, I think so. Um, I would, first of all, say that the Tea Party was much more culturally oriented than people gave it credit for at the time. Um, and so it's not as big of a break. But I think it is probably the case that um, evangelicals uh, have come back to the fore in the Trump era because I, I think that they started to panic that the Obama years uh, were when they were going to like lose lose their grip on American culture. And this is like their last chance to kind of lock it down, as it were.
1: I have been really looking forward to having you back on, Adam, because we had such a great conversation last time, and it leads me—it gives me some freedom in writing questions that might be a little bit goofy. But I think that uh, I, I think that you're going to be able to help me out, help me better understand evangelicalism through them. You write, despite its apparent coordination and consistent program, evangelicalism seems to elude firm definition. Unlike with Catholics, for instance, there is no single figurehead to whom all evangelicals pledge allegiance. And now I'm going to piss off a whole bunch of people on the left. Is its strength, is evangelicalism's uh, strength the strength that you find in movements such as critical mass and Occupy and Extinction Rebellion that it is leaderless?
2: Yeah, I think that that does help. Um, I think that it, uh, it kind of is a version of neoliberal best practices like translated into the religious realm. And people just pick up on these best practices and they tend to want to implement them in their own church and their own communities. Um, I kind of talk in my article about how my parents were uh, kind of at the forefront of trying to shift our local church in a more evangelical direction. It seems to, to the evangelicals that it's a formula for religion, for drawing people in, for making it more immediately accessible and it seems to just work. And so it spreads like a virus throughout the kind of Protestant Christian community.
1: So Adam, what is, and I know the answer to this question already, but I wanna make sure that people understand it better. What is, the ev- what is the evangelical religion? How would you define the religion that evangelicals believe in?
2: Well, I think that this is something where uh, terminology has been confusing. Uh, because uh, evangelical, the term can just mean Protestant, and so people say like, you know, evangelicals um, have like deeper roots, obviously, for hundreds of years, and especially you know roots in America, which is a strongly uh, Protestant uh, country. But I view it as essentially a new movement that started to come out in the the '70s um, and started to just gradually emerge through. Um, Things like uh, Christian music, like Christian rock music, um, through the religious right, through people like James Dobson, um, that it's just kind of a convergence of a series of trends that are all responding to the, the 60s counterculture and in a way trying to do it one better by creating their own Christian counterculture.
1: Also, you also write that most external critiques of the movement attempt to catch evangelicals in hypocrisy, claiming they cannot be authentically pro-life while advocating the death penalty, for instance, without first asking about the principles they have supposedly violated. Then later you mention your own experience. The more I have reflected on my experience in the evangelical movement, the more I realize that my evangelical upbringing planted the seeds of its own undoing. How are the charges by liberals that evangelicals are contradictory or hypocritical different from what was the undoing of you being an evangelical? Was it contradictions in hypocrisy or was it more than that or simply different contradictions mm-hmm. in hypocrisy than uh, what liberals normally criticize that drove you from evangelicalism?
2: Yeah, I think that uh um hypocrisy was not as much of an issue for me it wasn't as though i was driven away by like seeing some preacher like rail against homosexuality and then he turned out to be gay or something like that i was actually repelled by them being you know consistent with their principles like them doing i i didn't like uh kind of the, the principles that they were putting forward or how they were implementing them um i think so there's a difference between the hypocrisy and the kind of contradictory nature of evangelicals, because I think that there's there's a way that a, a, a tension in your worldview, it can either be productive and kind of keep you hooked, or it can uh, start to go off the rails. Um, and I talk about the way that evangelicals tend to be very individualistic, very focused on their own kind of religious experience and their own response to God, and so um, to that degree, it seems to all depend on the individual. But at the same time, they have this experience that um, God's grace just kind of happens to them. It's not something that they can control. It's not something that they can earn. Um, and so there's this like desire to freely choose to surrender any pretension to have free will or something like this, that when you're in that cycle and when you're trying to like live in that tension— it can be very like meaningful and kind of give your life a certain drama or a gravitas or something like that. Um, but it can also kind of come undone as it did in my case.
1: You're right. Despite the outer uniformity of its representatives, evangelicalism is a movement of self-styled individualists, which is something you were just pointing out as well, who shape their own form of Christianity to suit their own needs. Is evangelicalism then the, Ultimate religion for neoliberalism is evangelicalism the state religion of neoliberalism?
2: <laughs> That's a great phrase. I'm going to steal that. Um, I think that, yeah, I, I didn't highlight the neoliberal connection in my article because people tend to get distracted by that term. but you know, among a fellow knower about of evangelical or of neoliberalism, I can say, yeah, I do think that it's the distinctively neoliberal form of Christianity. Um, I think the use of, like, best practices that seem to just come from heaven, nobody knows where they came from, but this is just what we're doing now. Um, the sense of, like, customization that somehow always winds up um, producing the exact same results, you know, like the kind of customization on the way to conformity, I think that that fits very well with the neoliberal ethos. And there's also um, a presumption, and I think that this lies at the root of a lot of... Um, of evangelical practices, this presumption of a competition for souls, as it were. Um, I mentioned that um, America is growing more and more secular, um, and so that creates kind of a zero-sum competition for, like, the dwindling number of Christians. Um, And a lot of the practices that um, evangelicals adopt uh, to be seeker-sensitive, as they say, are an attempt to um, give you a competitive edge to make sure that your church is one of the few that's going like, to survive this uh, transition.
1: You write that outsiders often view the the television host, (coughs) Pat Robertson, or the late preacher and university president Jerry Falwell Sr. as major spokesman for the evangelical movement. But in my family, Robertson was viewed with suspicion and Falwell was totally irrelevant. Did your parents' radicalism, that kind of challenging of the mainstream politics of evangelicalism, if you will, within, you know, in, within, uh, evangelicalism, did that inform your own radicalism outside of evangelicalism?
2: Yeah, I don't think that my, it, just in my own evangelical community, Pat Robertson was gar- regarded as kind of a hack or as, um, um, almost just like tacky, I guess you would say, like he was just, there was just something off about him. And, um, also, I was in a, a Nazarene church, which was a small, like, offshoot of Methodism, and they uh, basically deeply distrusted Baptists, and so um, they were never going to be on board with with Jerry Falwell. Um, so, I mean, this is just saying that there is room for variety among um, evangelicals, and it kind of does map indirectly with the traditional denominations that it's kind of leached onto. Um, but... In terms of my parents' own radicalism, um, I would say the biggest thing that it, that it, um, I carried with me as I left the evangelical church was, like, whatever I'm going to be, I cannot be a liberal. Um, there is just uh, no way that I can embrace that. There's no way that I could view that as a positive thing. And so I tend to think that that knee-jerk reaction might have pushed me more towards... Um, more radical forms of the left, whereas I think a lot of people who leave the evangelical circles just wind up being, like, boring liberals.
1: (laughs) You're right. My parents' uh, sole complaint about the programming uh, for the church was the music, that's at the Nazarene church you attended, was the music, which was dull and conservative, an outpost of the vision of Christian contemporary modeled directly on the adult contemporary of the 1980s and early 90s. Did the music turn you off? Does it turn off a lot of young evangelicals because I've always seen it's always come off to me as pandering to younger people, so I've always wondered if uh, young evangelicals can see through that it, it it does 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 that Christian music does that push young people away from evangelicalism?
2: I think that it actually um, it gives I think it's actually like a very um, useful strategy for the movement to give kids this kind of um, Christian music and to pander to them in this way because they get the kind of thrill of, of the, they're getting something like their friends have, but they have their own special version that's like different and better su- supposedly than um, the secular music out there. Um, I think what I was describing is actually an earlier movement in the, uh, an earlier moment in history when kind of that type of music was controversial and it had not yet been adopted. And my parents were really pushing for that to be adopted. Um, nowadays, as you probably have observed, it's it's just hegemonic. Like you can't get away from these like simplistic uh, kind of, they're called worship choruses and they're very repetitive and they are very kind of emotionally manipulative. Uh, manipulative. Um, there are some kind of subgroups within The evangelical movement who are are turned away from that and they kind of just want to go back to like the real old-time religion of um, doing like liturgical worship and uh, catholic style stuff Um, that remains kind of a marginal um, tendency within evangelicalism i think that most people who are still in the movement today are actually very on board with that music and very dismissive of of any other way of worshiping i think that it's actually one of the things that keeps people hooked
1: So they've made a turnaround. They've changed. And at least their music isn't as bad anymore. And it's working better as a recruitment tool. You mentioned the writing of or the music of uh, Amy Grant, Carmen and DC Talk. You write Carmen's free concerts combined singing with spoken word sections meant to approximate rapping made him made him a, a favorite of youth groups across the country. He declared that the only hope for America is Jesus and warned us against those who would claim that the founders who knew the Bible chapter and verse intended America. to be a secular country, in one interview included in a VHS collection of music videos from his album Addicted to Jesus, Carmen described himself facing a choice early in his career. Did I want to be some rinky-dink Christian artist, or did I want to be a musical terrorist? Clearly, he chose the latter. Some might criticize this kind of politicization of religion, because here in the U.S., we like to have this fantasy of keeping state and church separate that said everything is political and that includes religion so in what sense if any is evangelicalism any more or less political than the practice of any other faith
2: yeah it's it's a curious thing uh, this idea that religion and politics should be separate because religion is about how you live day to day it involves like an element of community um, it's not just your own personal opinion. You, there's no religion of one. It needs to be done in community, and so you naturally are thinking about how should other people act, too. And um, it's it has all the, the hallmarks that we associate with the political, and how you're supposed to keep these things separate is very unclear, um, especially in a democratic society. Um, people are naturally going to bring their um, religious um, beliefs into the ballot box, and I don't think that there's any way to avoid it and I don't think that there's much use in, uh, in bemoaning it. You know, the problem with evangelicals views is not that they're religious and that they shouldn't have religious views that, uh, they bring into politics. It's that their views are destructive and, and, uh, oppressive. Like we need to confront them head on and say, no, it's not that, um, you're like making a category error by bringing your religion into politics. It's that you're just, you're doing bad politics that we oppose. Um, I think that we need to get better at kind of focusing on the content rather than the form um, in this case.
1: Why do you think there is that difficulty of focusing on the con- content instead of, uh, or focusing on the f- uh, form instead of content? Why, should, why do we not look at the content? Because in the way that I was reading this, and uh, I apologize if I'm getting it wrong, but one of the thoughts that I had was that it seems like evangelicals are more interested not in the content of what it means, what Christianity means, but almost like the brand of Christianity. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I think that that's, uh, that's a good way of putting it. You know, like I talk about how there you can do your Christian Pilates at the Christian gym and then go get your Christian latte at the Christian coffee shop. And that sounds like an exaggeration or like I'm making fun, but like all of those things are real in evangelical circles. Um, there's a Christian version of everything, and it just it reaches the point of being ridiculous. Um, sometimes it seems as though the sole content of evangelicalism is just identifying yourself as christian and then nothing else really has to change um which i think to me that's ultimately what um what threw me off or what uh i was hungry for something that had like more content to it you know um i think that's partly why um the bible has remained uh, a big part of my life even though i'm no longer a believer is because like they handed me the Bible and there's just so much in there. There's so many great stories, so much great history, you know, poetry. It's just this wealth that they reduce down to dumb slogans. Um, it's, It's extremely frustrating and it makes it very difficult to talk to them about anything.
1: Does that lead evangelicals to tolerate not only hatred amongst the other people who are evangelicals with them, but does it lead them to tolerate hatred within themselves?
2: You mean that they become self-hating in some way?
1: No, uh, more hatred towards others. Like, uh, you know... um I don't want, you know, I, it would be blasphemous for me to suggest that I am in any way like Christ. And so, therefore, if all of a sudden I'm going to say I'm no longer racist or a misogynist, that would be an attempt at being like Christ. Is, is that kind of, does, does evangelicalism give kind of a uh, get-out-of-jail-free card with any kind of hatred you might have towards others?
2: I think that they the strategy is slightly different. It gives them a way to disavow... Their hatred of others. Uh, One of the key slogans is um, hate, uh, (laughs) love the sinner, hate the sin. And I was just about to like pronounce it backwards, you know, hate the sinner, (laughs) sinner, love the sin. Um, I think that's how they really feel inside. But like the official slogan says, like, you know, we don't hate gay people, uh, we hate what they're doing to themselves with this supposedly destructive lifestyle. And we want them to change because it'd be the best thing for them. Actually, we're showing them more love than somebody who enables them to to be uh, to continue practicing homosexuality and digging themselves further into a pit of sin. Um, that this kind of strategy just allows them to kind of disavow their responsibility for their own actions. Um, I do think that there's uh, there's a tendency, uh, such as what you describe, where they're like. Um, trying to be too good or trying to be too righteous is like a way of playing God. And I think that that's how they view liberals, actually, that they're trying to reform society um, in a way that's unrealistic, that only God can do, and that's bound to backfire because people are sinful, and only Christians realize that they're sinful and respond appropriately to it, and anybody else is bound to just... be self-destructive in any way that they try to escape from the the consequences of that sinfulness.
1: So within evangelicalism then is social justice is an attempt at social justice seen as blasphemous is uh, our social justice warriors, as some people call them, are they seen as doing the work of the devil for trying to improve our lot in life here on earth?
2: I think it's more just that they're, they're misguided that um, that really the only level that that kind of thing can happen on is the individual level and attempting to impose it on anybody through government programs is um, like counterproductive at best and might actually be immoral. Like I've heard people say that the problem with the welfare state is that it takes away people's opportunity to be generous, um, that somehow the opportunity for people to donate their money um, and give freely is more valuable than making sure that people are actually taken care of. Um, again, this is just like, everything is solely about individual morality and anything that goes beyond that is just very, very difficult for them to conceive of or think about. Um, there was a movement like in the two thousands, um, there was a, a, a shift towards like an attempt at a religious left. Um, it's associated with, um, magazine called sojourners and it just basically never really took off they were trying to be like left-wing evangelicals or like show that the bible shows that you should be an environmentalist or something like that and i think there's a case to be made that the bible does tell you to be an evangel- uh, to be an environmentalist but that's just not how it works because they just do not have a radar for any type of social problem beyond the um, kind of sum of individual choices
1: and I remember in the late 90s, early aughts, a uh, guest on our show, uh, three-time Nobel Peace Prize nominee, Kathy Kelly, formerly of Voices in the Wilderness and now Voices for Concerned Nonviolence, would tell me that she would take her anti-Iraq sanctions, anti-Iraq war message to these kind of left-wing evangelical rallies. And she was telling me at the time that she thought that, because they were growing at the time, she thought that that had some sort of hope in the fut- for the future. But is Evangelicalism at its heart anti collectivism because the part I don't understand of if that if it's so about the individual then how do they get this concept of us versus them within that thinking how can you both be so hyper individual yet still embrace an idea of us versus them?
2: Yeah, I think the the issue here is that um, I think ideally. Everybody should be a Christian in their minds. Obviously. I think a lot of people of a lot of religions believe that Um, But they have a unique stance towards this. It's that everybody is like a potential Christian or a failed Christian Um, If somebody stridently rejects uh, Christianity after like clearly knowing about it, it can only be the case that they are like actively rejecting God's grace and that they're, you know, essentially on the side of the devil Um, And so it's just kind of this us versus them, this kind of simplistic um, duality between like the hateful secular world and then like our community huddled together. It is just um, reducible down to individual choices. And it's just kind of like sorting people into what did they choose? Do they choose God or do they choose to rebel against God? Um, So it's not as though there's some organic community out there of secular people. Like um, I think they would view the secular people as being like, more isolated and more kind of atomistic and less um, able to have authentic community uh, because they don't have the benefit of God's grace that the evangelicals have.
0: Um,
1: Yeah, one of the things that you also mention is the different way in which Christianity is seen in evangelicalism. And you point out that it's devoid of uh, what they consider irrelevant historical baggage to what extent is evangelicalism a break from how Christianity has been practiced from the very beginning
2: yeah I think it's definitely an innovation um, I this is where like I want to define evangelicalism as starting in the 70s and not kind of muddy the waters by connecting it to previous movements because I think that's that's a helpful way to clarify the analysis um, but there there has been um, an individualistic, um, element in uh, Christianity, especially beginning with Protestantism, um, you know, like people have credited the Protestant Refo- Reformation with being the origin of, of modern individualism. So in a way, it's kind of a radicalization of certain themes within Christianity. In a way, it is kind of a break uh, because they just like ditch all of this um, historical baggage, as you, as you pointed out. But again, that's a, that's a gesture that's been repeated at various times uh, throughout the history of Christianity. You know, Martin Luther wanted to get rid of a lot of this extra stuff and just go back to the Bible. Um, and that just keeps happening again and again. And I think that for the evangelical um, today, even if they can find like common political cause with Catholics, like the Catholic is the ultimate insincere Christian in the evangelical viewpoint because they view belonging to the community as, as a primary part of their um, Christian faith and don't have as much of a emphasis on individual kind of um, conscious reception of it, um, that you can just kind of be Catholic and be born into it, whereas in evangelicalism you, you
1: have to choose it. Because, you know, Christ was always about the individual. He always was saying, me, me, me. I think that shows up so often in his Gospels. You're right. Most researchers agree that the number of Americans with no religious affiliation, often referred to as nuns, in the literature, that's N-O-N-E-S, just in case you're wondering, has been growing in recent decades. Even if evangelicals really are reaching the unchurched to some degree, their efforts have been swamped by broader trends towards secularism. Do you think there's any relationship between the dwindling number of Christians and the rise of evangelicalism? Does evangelicalism lead to potential Christians, uh, or lead potential Christians to the belief that Christians are hypocritical, and therefore they don't want to be any kind of Christian.
2: Yeah, that could be part of it. Um, In fact, I cite, uh, my mom thought that sometimes the mass media would show the least appealing Christians um, on talk shows and stuff like that in order to, like, discredit Christianity. Um, And I think there may be um, some sliver of truth to that because it does seem like the media views like more conservative Christians as as necessarily more authentic or something like that, which I think is misguided and harmful. Um, there are authentically liberal and leftist Christians out there that we need to hear from. Um, but yeah, I do think that their kind of bunker mentality, while it's ostensibly meant to reach a wider public, has just wound up isolating them in their own little world um, that um, keeps on losing young people as it goes. You know, I'm I'm one of many people. Um, I remember when the movie Jesus Camp came out and people were super terrified to see what was going on. And they, they claimed that there was like all this brainwashing of children. And I had a hard time taking it seriously because I was hanging out with like a dozen people who had uh, successfully undid the the brainwashing and left the evangelical movement. It's it's not super hard to do.
1: So uh, there's, I've got a few more questions for you, and uh, these are kind of the ones that I was the most interested in actually so I'm teasing the audience a little bit you write they have been a crucial part evangelicals have been a crucial part of the Republican coalition that has controlled the political terms of debate for the better part of a generation discussion <coughs> of moral issues and around what counts as a moral issue in the first place has been carried out overwhelmingly on evangelical turf why does the media allow evangelicals to determine the terms and the limits of moral debate because their influence over that debate certainly suggests some level of media complicity for whatever reason, either by pressure from the outside or pressure from the inside. So why does the media allow evangelicals to determine the terms and limits of moral debate?
2: I think this is actually a shared responsibility of uh, the media and of the liberal establishment. Um, the media is supposed to be neutral, so it doesn't want to like take a position on controversial um, moral issues or seem to be doing that. Um, The evangelicals assert a very strong moral position. And meanwhile, I think uh, liberals and people on the left more generally have been shy of claiming a moral basis for what they're doing. They've been shy of using the terms morality because they associate it with judgmentalism or because that's just not how they think. In any case, I think that the media terrain was favorable to evangelicals basically claiming the field because there wasn't really another counterforce out there that was um, speaking in that same moral language
1: You write, we must not imitate them, the people who are the critics and the opponents of evangelicals must not imitate evangelicals and we cannot convert them because their contempt for moral striving and their relentless self-obsession provide few openings for persuasion from without. We can only seek to defeat them not only by using the existing levers of democratic self-rule, but by reforming our system to prevent a determined minority from entrenching its preferences in defiance of a popular will they regard as sinful and illegitimate. So what would you say to those in the Democratic Party who believe that they need to I know they wouldn't use this word, but they need to pander to uh, the evangelicals in order to draw some of them into the political fold to vote for the next Democratic Party presidential candidate.
2: I think it's it's just a losing battle. Um, They're so like for them, voting Republican is like muscle memory at this point. It takes such an effort to get them to even consider voting for a Democrat. Um, I know that my mom has voted for uh, the Democratic uh, governor of Michigan uh, because she's a teacher and because the uh, Governor Snyder, the, the former Republican, was just so destructive to schools, but it was just like a desperation move on her part. And I think that everything that Democrats do to try to appeal to the evangelicals is just going to wind up like dispiriting like 10 times more people who uh, otherwise are their reliable voters I think this is where Democrats need to break out of, like, uh, neoliberal best practices where you're always trying to reach people outside your coalition. Just like if we really mobilize the people who are natural Democrats and stopped chasing after the evangelicals in the suburbs or whatever, then we could swamp them numerically and uh, use the resulting power to actually put in some reforms that would keep this terrible thing from happening again. But by continuing to appeal to them, we continue to legitimate them in a way.
1: So wait a second. Are you from Michigan? Yeah. Okay. I'm from Michigan, too. And I, so I've got it's, it's going to be one of two cities that you're from, areas you're from. You're either from Grand Rapids or Bay City.
2: Oh, I was uh, I was from outside of Flint.
1: Oh, I was close. And Burton. Is that where you're from? Oh, no, Davison. Okay. all right.
2: Dear Dear Burton, yeah. Yeah.
1: Is it because of my accent? Uh, Yeah, it's that Michigan accent. It's also where, you know, evangelicalism is at its largest, uh, you know, it's around the thumb and it's over by GR, so that was my guess. We've been speaking with writer, teacher, and translator Adam Kotzko, who returns to This Is Hell to discuss his N Plus One magazine article, The Evangelical Mind. He was on our show in the past uh, to talk about a great book that he did, Neoliberalism's Demons on the Political Theology of late capital, and you can find that interview at hell.com. and I suggest you do because his take on late capitalism is fantastic. Find out more about Adam at com, and follow Adam on Twitter at adamkotsko. that's K-O-T-S-K-O. As we always do with our guests, our final question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or... Our audience is going to hate your response. You write, the hardest part of my journey outside the evangelical circle was realizing that the evangelicals were ultimately offering me nothing. For all their countercultural posturing, the end result of the evangelical experience is a self-satisfied conformism, a world in which they can live exactly like their white suburban neighbors, enjoying a Christian version of their consumerism, a Christian version of their a political self absorption and a Christian version of the stereotyped family life they saw on television growing up. That is what all the manipulation and paranoia and guilt and shame are aiming at. So, Adam, my question from hell for you is evangelicalism then nothing more than a religious rationalization for being a dick? Yes. <laughs> What a concise answer to the question from hell. That's what I get for not asking a why question and asking a yes or no. Adam, I really appreciate you being back on the show this week. It's always a pleasure. Please keep us in mind. Next time you have anything published, we will want to have you back on as soon as possible. I always enjoy our conversations.
2: I do, too. Thank you.
1: All right. Take care, Adam. This is hell where we put people before profits, which turns out to be a horrible business model. In early August, an El Paso Walmart was the site of a massacre killing 22 people, a massacre that was fueled by racism and hate. So why El Paso? Why does this Texas border town find itself the target of so much racist hate? We'll try to figure it out when we talk to international journalist and researcher Andrew Kennis, who returns to the show to talk about his recent alternate uh, story, how El Paso became a national target for a brutal act of white supremacist terror. Andrew is a member of the prestigious National Research Body, the National Council of Science and Technology's National System of Researchers. Speaking of our horrible business model where we put... stupidly, we stupidly put people before profits on Patreon this week during the fifth hour of this week's This Is Hell. And if you want to hear all five hours of hell, you have to subscribe to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell. Yes, we offer five hours of This Is Hell every week now. So on this week's Patreon podcast we are going to be playing our interview from 2014 with Andrew Kennis who we just uh, we are about to speak to when he was on to tell us about the Sinaloa drug cartel and their activities in Chicago which brought scrutiny to DEA tactics in Mexico's drug war but that interview is not currently available online so the only way you can hear our earlier interview with our next guest Andrew Kennis is by subscribing to This is Hell on Patreon at patreoncom slash Hell. so if you like what you hear During our upcoming talk with Andrew The only way you can hear our 2014 conversation with him Is by subscribing at patreon.com Slash thisishell I will also have a brand new monologue That you can't hear Unless you are a subscriber on Patreon And this week it's about a Beautiful, wonderful crime I participated in this last weekend Absolutely the best crime The most enjoyment The most fun I've had in a crime In a really long time It just really brings me back God, I miss being criminal. If you want to support truly independent media and keep us completely independent, we take no grants, we take no advertising, we are not beholden to anyone, which is more than can be said for a lot of what you think are independent and alternative media outlets but are not. Support This Is Hell by becoming a This Is Hell subscriber at patreon.com slash Hell, and every week get exclusive content only for subscribers that includes access to live streaming content you cannot get otherwise. That's This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash Hell. coming up on this week's show. Why does El Patno? El Patno. I'll try that again. Why does El Paso witness so much hate? Water as right versus a commodity, and how UAW corruption led to the current UAW strike against GM. Of course, we'll have Jeff Dorchin delivering a moment of truth later on this week's show. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's. This is how Alex Jerry. Live from late capitalism where we know the price of everything but the value of nothing, this is hell. Why El Paso? Why does that Texas border town attract such violent, virulent hatred, the kind that leads to racially driven massacres? Here to help explain, international journalist and researcher Andrew Kennis returns to This Is Hell to talk about his recently posted alternate story how El Paso became a natural target for a brutal act of white supremacist terror. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Andrew. Pleasure to be on with you, Chuck. How's it going? Always great to hear your voice, sir. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, at Andrew Kennis. And again, Andrew Kennes' interview that we did with him way back in 2014. My apologies for not having you on. In a more quick and fast fashion. but uh, no unless, problem. Last sir. time Andrew was on back in March 2014, he was on, like I was saying, to discuss the Sinaloa drug cartel and their activities here in Chicago. And to hear that interview, you have to subscribe to our Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. But you can follow Andrew on Twitter at Andrew underscore Kennis K-E-N-N-I-S. So on August 3rd, 22 people were murdered in an El Paso Walmart. You write... Maricela Ortiz is no stranger to violence, an El Paso resident who resettled in the border city after successfully petitioning for asylum in 2012. Ortiz's harrowing description of the death threats she had and her, she and her family received, as well as the conditions of Ciudad Juarez during its worst spasms of violence, is the kind of story that you might hear from many residents of this sprawling Texas border town. Then you quote Ortiz saying, the situation was so horrible in Juarez. Again, this is just on the other side of the Rio Grande from El Paso. It was so horrible. Horrible in Juarez that you'd see the dead corpses of men hung on bridges. When you were in a movie theater, you'd still hear the shootouts and later realize that three or four or more people were killed during the movie. This is why she sought asylum. And so many other Mexicans are seeking asylum in the United States. They are trying to flee for their lives. What responsibility, in your opinion, if any, does the U.S. share with Mexico for the deadly violence in Ciudad Juarez? How, if at all, does the U.S. contribute to that violence in Mexico on the other side of the border in Ciudad Juarez that uh, led her to flee to the U.S.?
0: Oh, it's the responsibility is very, very high. As, is all too many Mexicans are keenly aware, many firsthand actually. Um, first and foremost, just because of the obvious, of, the most obvious of all reasons, and that's because uh, you know, the drug war is fought on the behest of um, of the United States itself. There's no bigger drug consumer in the world, many times over, actually. Than the u.s itself and there's no actually bigger leading proponent or even the actual original designer of the the so-called war on drugs than again the u.s itself so um that drives uh you know almost all the violence that that juanenses have long experienced and um you know as we recently saw with the power play that that trump did with mexico and, and literally forcing mexico's hand to uh, significantly revamp its uh, policies and treatment toward refugees, it doesn't really take much more than a, a phone call. And th- this is even with a center-left president, you know, something Mexico has never had to get Mexico to, to bend its will, its political will, toward the U.S.'s, um, you know, whatever, practically whatever it wants to have done. And so this is something that Mexicans have long been aware of. Guayances are, are no exception to that, that rule. And um, in fact, even when you enter um, where it is from El Paso, they are sister cities on the border. And at one time, a long time ago actually, uh, by now it feels like a long time, the, the, the two cities were very intertwined, but that's been uh, a long ago, a, a big stop because of 911 uh, and the anti-immigration policies. Um, but the cities are still somewhat connected and, if, and for the folks that, and plenty of folks drive into El Paso, many, many of them to work, um, and when they go back, they see a big sign that actually, uh, ironically, was put up during the Calderon years. Uh, I say ironically because Calderon was a big drug war proponent himself. So I don't want to say all the responsibilities is on the US's hands or all the blooders. You know, whenever it comes to any kind of imperial power play, um, there always needs to be a kind of cooperating uh, sort of colonial power. And that, that certainly was the case with Calderon. Um, and even to a certain extent, with not that much of a choice, uh, with AMLO as well. But what I wanted to say with this sign was that there was a big sign erected with a bunch of guns um, that the Mexican authorities had seized that said uh, something like, I think it said no more guns or no more violence or something like that. It's kind of like a warning to the folks coming into Juarez um, not to traffic guns. But um, of course, it's, it's pretty easy. Basically, you can literally practically walk um, into Juarez, even without a passport, and so, <laughs> you know, it might be a harrowing sign, but um, it's really not hard to get stuff into Mexico. So as I say, it, it is a shared responsibility to a certain degree, but given the power dynamics at stake, the U.S. does have an overwhelming responsibility for the, the violence that has long um, been a problem for Juarez, and particularly, as, as noted in the article, peaking out in, in 2010, and that's where it ties back to Ortiz's story, in the sense that she was part um, of a wave, literally a wave of migration where practically uh, six, uh, almost a fifth of the city moved to El Paso. Um, and, and even in that post-911 sense is really one of the biggest, most more recent things that ties the city so much together. And that, of course, plays into what happened uh, with the massacre. And that's kind of one of the major themes in my feature story is how, you know, guardensees literally were running away from unspeakable horrors and and violence into El Paso in, in record-breaking numbers and so for, for them to witness or, or even be a victim to this massacre is just uh, one of many recurring themes where where Juarez and many folks from northern Mexico who have uh, managed to immigrate to the states um, just can't get away from some of the recurring, Horrible uh, things that that circle around their life. But granted, a lot of things do change when living in El Paso, but um, this really was a kind of a almost like a bad memory of of things that that were in their past, uh, this massacre last month, um, along with many other things I talk about in the article, which I'm sure you'll ask about as well.
1: You write about Ortiz uh, being granted asylum for the activism that she was doing in Juarez. What kind of activism made her her a target in Ciudad Juarez? Because I want to figure out exactly uh, what the uh, gangs, what they're fighting against, what what people are fighting against that she represented
0: yeah you know uh, she really isn't um a lone story. There are many activists who had to flee uh Juarez or even other parts of mexico um but plenty plenty in juarez and uh you know her activism was uh not not just a single issue, but she did have a pretty strong focus on impunity and this is the dynamic where um prosecutors and and investigators and detectives are literally so under uh, enormous pressure to not really follow up on crimes and, and prosecute those who have undertaken them that they, that, you know, in fact, there's a great local journalist named Sandra Rodriguez who looked into this and got literal numbers that up to 95% of of murders in in Juarez and beyond, um, and this is actually generous statistics for the nation as a whole, are never prosecuted. And so um, there were many activists who got involved with this kind of stuff um, and so particularly seeking justice for, you know, those who have been disappeared, Um, she was also involved with some women's rights issues and uh, very much close to the the femicide issue, which was an explosive issue in, um, Juarez as well. And so, um, Ortiz was targeted in in many horrible ways and even had some family members, um, targeted as well, tortured. Uh, she was held up at gunpoint herself, um, you know, never, never a fun experience to have when you're in the midst of activism. That's kind of coming, having the clamps put on you, and eventually, had was forced to to kind of not only go to El Paso but to go underground. She still does do her activism um, to this day, but obviously a lot less than she was able to do when she was literally uh, a resident of Juarez and 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 not as publicly, not nearly as publicly as before. And so, um, it's a very different life for for Ortiz and El Paso. And like uh, many other residents in El Paso who came from parties, uh the massacre really did bring up some pretty bad memories for her.
1: You mentioned the turf war that had uh, peaked in violence in Juarez. Between 2000 and 2011, warring factions in La Linea Cartel and the Chapo Guzman-led Sinaloa Cartel, competing for control over the world's most valuable and important plaza, left over 3,000 people dead in Juarez in 2010. What made Ciudad Juarez so important to gangs? Why was that such a strategic place to control?
0: Well, like as I as I mentioned earlier in the, in the interview, uh, you know, there's no bigger uh, gold mine, so to speak, for drug sales in the world than than is the U.S. And there's no bigger uh, borderplex uh, in the world than um, than El Paso and Sierra Juarez. It has nearly three million residents between both cities. There's no bigger um, metropolis, so to speak, that strap that you know that straps both sides of a border in the world than El Paso and Juarez. And given the amount of vehicular traffic and pedestrians that go through the border every single day, and this is not something even a Trump administration, you know, strongly xenophobic uh, as it is uh, with its uh, assorted policies, uh, many of which, of course, continue to Obama's policies, but many of which have certainly stepped up the, the measures even that much more. Even with that kind of administration in place, there's, it's just impossible, impossible to monitor even a even a simple majority, even even a significant minority of this traffic that goes back and forth between the border. Because if that was the case, it would literally bring the economy to a halt. It could even have a national implications, actually, as well. It's, it's that important, um, the border economy, so to speak, um, in the grander uh, scheme of things, that you you just can't really uh, even have random monitoring to a huge, huge degree. So. As a result, folks who are actually really, uh, you know, experts on this issue and close to it, and it has been documented, even has been testified in Congress about most of. And this is this speaks actually directly to another one of the issues in the article in terms of the private wall that was built, and of course the the public wall that uh, Trump wants to build has not been able to, fortunately, uh, to do um, most of the the illegal, so to speak, um, narcotics that that across the border do so through legal means you know so that's not something that the the border wall is going to ever stop or even a private wall for that matter so uh, literally it's hidden in cars or on persons and they just simply take the risk of of not getting caught and most of them don't um the ones that do are simply taken as a loss for the, the cartels and um you know no big deal sacrificial lamb so to speak and business as usual is is conducted so every single day this happens and then Of course, there's been whistleblowers within um, La Migra, as local residents are fond of calling them in kind of a derisive fashion, Um, referring, of course, immigration officials and and border patrol officials. Uh, There were some whistleblowers who, uh, and and former high-ranking officials actually as well who have since let us know the reality that – you uh, have something like they've estimated themselves ten to twenty percent of uh, you know U.S. based officials that are on the take because you know you're dealing with billion dollar cartels you know and even these folks that are, are uh, often uh, uh, bringing down salaries that either you or I would be jealous of perhaps um, you know 100000 dollars a year are are sometimes sometimes times maybe even you could say find it hard to resist, um, you know, bribes, so to speak. And so between basically the decent odds of getting through the border uh, and the many tricks there and to do so, the pressures, you know, economic pressures to not be able to slow down traffic to a a crawl, because even to the extent that check-ins are done and, and inspections are done in a limited fashion, it's still a pretty... Long wait, you know. So it's pretty much as, as long as it can get, you know, to get through the border as many border residents and as myself, as a former border border resident, can personally attest. Um, between the bribes, you know, between the billion dollar business, between the biggest border complex cl- in the world, uh, this is literally the corner piece of the drug, the global drug trade, the global drug trade in the world. This is the the prize. So. It, it, it take a large leap of imagination to understand why war and factions would be fighting over this. And when the Sinaloa cartel, as we talked about years ago, um, which ha- has re- received in the past and the past and per- perhaps even in, even to this day significant help from both the U.S. and Mexican governments, ro- rose to power and practically had you know uh, almost monopolistic control over the the global trade. Um, And certainly with the Mexico-U.S. trade, it started uh, basically a turf war in is to win that plaza because they didn't have it before. um, And they definitely wanted it thereafter. Um, And this really came to a peak in 2010. And so whenever the warring factions fight, that's when violence uh, really gets to uh, unspeakable horrors and levels and just, uh, you know, to the the extent where you have like practically a fifth of the city, six of the city, migrating uh, across the border to to El Paso, um, and you know it, it's it, because of these uh, problems associated with uh, turf wars, and so to speak. This was often the excuse given by officials um, as to why sometimes there would be a sort of favoritism of one cartel over another. And but uh, obviously, in the long run, that doesn't necessarily solve things because while you might uh, eliminate or reduce some more factions in some cities. Uh, that power and that hunger for more and more wealth and greater, greater control doesn't really stop. And so there you have, uh, you know, then then cartel leader El Chapo, along with his uh, uh, then associate, still at large, by the way, Mayo Zambada, uh, thirsting, so to speak, for control over Juarez. They fought over it. They fought for it. They won it. And but in the in the path, of course, there was a ton of innocent death. Um, uh, innocent lives left, uh deaths, destruction. It left Juarez uh, practically looking like a a ghost city. Where it actually, in one point, I mean, there's this uh, interesting web page and I think Facebook page that has incredible photos of Juarez from the 50s. I mean, this was a place where celebrities. Around the U.S. and and the worldwide over would like to hang out and drink at. It was a place where El Pasoans themselves would like to drink at, because they could go there and and take advantage of the younger drinking age. And you see these pictures, and Juarez looked like a bustling border city, and it really was, by all accounts, of folks who I spoke to about about how it used to be. And so, literally, practically overnight, you know, historically speaking, at least, and um, to what many residents felt like a pretty fast and and pretty disparaging transformation. You know, Ciudad Juarez was uh, transformed from a bustling cultural beacon of a border city where I uh, think Ronald Reagan went there at one point during his acting career, crazy stuff like that, to a dark kind of uh, Gotham-like ghost city um, where people were afraid to literally go out at night, certainly by 2010. Um, and all of this really came to, to being, again, because of the, the, the increasing of the intensity of the drug war. Um, starting a little bit slowly in the 90s, and creeping up uh, certainly more intensely in the after 911 9-1 error, 911 error, and the border became much much less porous. That didn't really help matters either. Uh, increasing even more so when Calderon went on his drug war offensive. As of uh, as soon, practically as soon as he came to the presidency, that was like his big issue, um, and certainly peaking out in 2010 for the El Paso Juarez borderplex when they were fighting over the most valuable plaza in the world, that of El Paso and Ciudad Juarez. And that ties in, again, to the the bigger story at work, not only to our prior interview, my prior work with the Sinaloa Lower Cartel, but even to the kind of things um, and the dynamics that I felt really weren't being covered very well by the mainstream media that descended upon El Paso in ways it never had before, which um, rightly in some senses described it as a very friendly, binational, bilingual, nice immigrant city. That's, that's very true. But they were really missing the bigger story of just how much... Uh, Juarez has long been victimized, and even El Paso itself. And that gets part uh, gets to the other parts of the story, which, again, I'm sure you'll ask about more in just a moment, where El Paso weathers all sorts of xenophobic and borderland policies, particularly intensified by the Trump administration that it doesn't really agree with. Like If you ever put the border wall to a vote, the fact that it's a money laundering capital to a vote, uh, the concentration camps to a vote, this immigrant-friendly city, as described correctly by the mainstream media, would would not be in favor of it by any uh, account I could find from any activist, any any uh, even politician or or resident. Um, this is not popular stuff with the residents themselves, who ba- basically practically all at least 80 percent and more come from some sort of immigrant and or Latino background. So, uh, but we can by all means talk about. Uh, any of those parts that (laughs) must interest you, Chuck.
1: As you mentioned, uh, as you were just mentioning, the city's banks, and you write, the city's banks are used as a major laundering point for international money laundering and its borders, both with Juarez and New Mexico, are the nexus of an ongoing political battle over whether Trump's main campaign promise to build a big, beautiful wall will ever become a reality. A privately built stretch of wall has already been constructed, expanded, and commemorated via mostly outside support. Not long before the mass shootout, a white nationalist group led and found by an outsider was openly organizing in the city so as you write throughout your article it seems like the outsiders outside activities outside actions outside events have more influence impact and over the city control the city more than what happens with insiders there's an irony in outsiders having such an impact on El Paso, and yet they themselves are viewed as outsiders by the outsiders. Is there an us versus <laughs> them feeling in El Paso?
0: Yes, there is. I mean, of course there is. It's a very big feeling that describes uh, many of the residents' uh, existences, whether it be the past or, or even the present. Um, given how important El Paso and Juarez are, to the drug cartels, given how important they are, especially to the cornerstone um, you know, foundation of the xenophobic campaign and, of course, xenophobic administration of Trump, uh, and even not with the lessons importance to uh, past administrations, too, whether it be Obama or Bush or, or Jr. or Hillary or, or Bill Clinton. I mean, this stuff's been important for a long time and has obviously been heightened even more. Um, El Paso has wound up being kind of almost a pawn, so to speak, in these high-stake political games and these high-stake political, uh, politicized drug wars as well. And the kind of policies that have been enacted and it, it being even targeted uh, – uh, by this point, by white nationalists, whether it be um, you know this group that was set up that has harassed immigrants, uh, undocumented immigrants uh, crossing the border, and and even to the point of their leader having been prosecuted for impersonating a border patrol, something he denied of doing in court, but freely admitted to doing on, on his own YouTube and live streaming stuff that was uploaded to to the internet. Um, you know, this stuff was actually happening even before the massacre. Um, the group had descended upon. El Paso, um, months—I think almost a half a year, if not longer—before the massacre, Trump's rhetoric obviously was stepped up uh, uh, significantly, even more than before, before the massacre. And so, between El Paso, and historically having a deal with outside forces, doing as they please with their city, um, almost all the time against their will, um, things just got even worse with the the whole white nationalist thing, and culminating in this in this massacre, um, you know, just. Not even, I think it was in the State of the Union address, uh, you know, Trump was uh, lashing out at El Paso, and uh, as, odd, as often the case, based on um, fake and uh, literally false uh, uh, statistics and or uh, so-called alternative facts, I guess as uh, Kelly Conway put it, uh, describing El Paso as having had to deal with a so-called invasion, when in fact even just simple, uncontroversial, indisputable Evidence of immigration shows that you know you wouldn't even know this given Trump and unfortunately not enough of uh, I think mainstream counter coverage to this theme. Um, you you almost almost wouldn't even know it, but this has not been the banner year in terms of immigration. In my article, as I noted, um, you know it's actually on the downturn, and the bigger years were in in previous years uh, closer to NAFTA actually. I don't remember the year off my uh, off my bat the so to speak the biggest year of refugees and undocumented immigration but it certainly wasn't this one as Trump falsely alluded to in the speech so perhaps it wasn't a, at all coincidence that not too long after that State of the Union speech um, and it, it wasn't the first time that Trump targeted El Paso but it certainly probably won't be the last one either but it was a it was a big and important time you had this white nationalist group descending on El Paso and it was really just a couple of dozen people but that's all it takes to basically wreck havoc and intimidate the heck out of um, immigrants that do illegal things, such as impersonating Border Patrol agents. And this is the kind of stuff that was going on, again, before the massacre. So while the massacre was certainly an aberration in the sense that El Paso hadn't suffered a racially motivated hate crime uh, or massacre for over a century, um, and that was a big part of the, the mainstream coverage, and that wasn't incorrect. But there's a bigger part of the story I want to try and capture in my feature my own feature, which is that the sense is that the massacre really was a continuation of many other uh, of many other things. And in general, as you said, kind of an us-them versus m- mentality, and, in, and even to a larger extent I would describe it as just simply bigger outside political and economic forces, including even that of the drug cartels, imposing its will on both cities uh, against the popular will and political, you know, uh, political inclinations of the people themselves. You know, and and that's a voice that I feel like was really lost in much of the the mainstream coverage. I mean, what about the fact that the borderland territories, uh, the borderland areas, rather, so to speak, uh, and the biggest in the world, uh, their own residents simply don't get to have the kind of policies and the kind of treatment, politically speaking. Um, that they deserve. You know, we have this tradition, so so to speak, in in the states of having a lot of local control, local laws, you know, as also a Mexico city resident um, myself, I can tell you, uh, you know, that kind of federalism, that kind of local control doesn't really exist here in Mexico. Um, And in the states, sometimes we we take it for granted. Uh, But in plenty of places like El Paso, you know, which is strategically so important, With such uh, overwhelming interest, we haven't even talked about money laundering yet, you know, that goes into the billions um, of dollars. They don't really have a big voice in how their community uh, gets, uh, you know, governed with these biggest, uh, with the, the biggest and most important policies.
1: And you write that for all of Trump's rhetoric about El Paso and the rest of the border region being invaded by destitute refugees, El Paso serves as a blood bank of sorts for the drug war, which it helps fuel by laundering massive amounts of money. So Trump says this is all about fighting crime. This is all about fighting drugs. This is all about fighting violence. All these things that are linked to criminal activities that deal with drug laundering. So if the real topic, if the real focus, if the real mission is to end all of the criminal drugs, drug dealing that goes through El Paso and is supposedly invading the United States. To you, what explains why the government isn't, why the Trump administration isn't targeting money laundering, the lifeblood of the violence, which is pushing people toward the United States? And what effect do you think having a, reigning in that money laundering would actually have on the people of El Paso?
0: Well, you know what? Um, there are really three key uh, facets to the drug war, and and the most obvious one that is talked about almost too much is drugs, of course. And the other two are money and guns. So as I was talking about that kind of sign, that harrowing sign that folks, uh, I'm pretty sure it's still there actually, that has a bunch of guns assembled and you know almost begging folks not to bring in guns to Quartes. Um you know, it's just as important. And then that's a whole other story in itself. You know, we talked about this before with my, my prior work with the Fast and Furious story and the deliberate uh, gun walking uh, scandal uh, in, right into the hands of the Sinaloa Cartel. But um, I, I don't think we talked about much or even at all about the, the other vital element uh, in our last talk of, of money laundering, of course. Um, and that's, you know, guns is one thing. And uh, of course, we, we could talk about the NRA and, and all, a whole bunch of other stuff with that. But money is quite another. And so um, the problem, so to speak, and this is why it's, the drug war is so, so entrenched um, and, and often is an excuse and perhaps even somewhat of a legitimate one of, of, of officials, is that if, if money laundering is significantly combated, um, that could do some serious disruption to the local and even international economy. This is just how crazily embedded the drug war is into the global economy, and that does Tend to intimidate officials a lot, you know. While it uh, definitely there's some prosecuting money laundering cases, and in fact, one is noted in my my feature article. As experts have also testified in, and 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 um, written about, and again, they're quoted in the article as well. Um, the, it's only a fraction of the cases that are really really prosecuted, and so um, it kind of goes back to the the more deeper criticism of the war itself, which is is the drug war really about Fighting the illicit um, trade of drugs, or is it really about more a prison industrial complex issue, um, you know, a kind of gun industry issue, and a, a military in- industrial complex issue, or even a border industrial complex issue? I mean, you want to believe the amount of and uh, one of the biggest military bases that is located in El Paso, I mean, it is a huge multi-billion-dollar industry, and um, I talked about this as well in the article. Uh, You know, with the border patrol increases, even to the point where, um, you know, you had rookie cops being hired who were fired from previous jobs and trigger happy and shooting um, innocent victims in Juarez, Mexican nationals in Juarez, from the other side of the border to literally have cross-border assassinations as uh, was as as a leading investigative weekly that published an article I wrote about this called Proceso. Um, headlined the article itself, cross-border assassinations. Um, you know, this is the kind of industry that's propped up along the border, and that's very, very much closely related to the drug war itself. So, it, you know, is the drug war really more about maintaining these billion-dollar industries, and or, or is it really about fighting drugs, you know? Because if it was about fighting drugs, as you suggest yourself, I mean, the plug could be pulled much, much more extensively than it, it already is. Um, on the drug war, even if it just went after money laundering itself. I mean, the drug cartels are nothing. They can't obviously launder their money. I mean, that is the, that is literally the capillary in their blood, you know, the blood flows uh, that they rely upon. Um, and it's clear that not much investment or even rhetoric. I mean, does Trump even talk about funny mon- funny fighting money laundering when, when being so-called worried about the security of the border? Um, I mean, it's not even in his general rhetoric, really, you know. Um, in spite of it being an, an obvious way to really kind of cut the knees out of uh, the cartels, right? But, of course, that's not you know, what the leading critics of the drug war say that the drug war is really about. And, and that's a big reason why you know, this isn't done. And that's why st- crazy stuff happens like you know, rookie cops shooting on uh, kids even, um, which is uh, a pretty – yeah, that's the name. The, the Supreme Court case that is named after um, a 15-year-old victim in part that was shot. By a border patrol agent. Um, that's re- coming up again this month, but that unfortunately probably won't be victorious uh, for the for the for the side of the families. Uh, that is the uh, families of ex-convicts. Um, that's the kind of stuff that goes on instead of, you know, uh, effectively so-called fighting the the drug war on behalf of the so-called security of the people.
1: We have been speaking with international journalist and researcher Andrew Kennis, who has returned to This Is held to discuss his article that he posted at Alternet, Alternet, How El Paso Became a Natural Target for a Brutal Act of White Supremacist Terror. Andrew was on our show back in March 2014, and if you subscribe to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash Hell, you'll be able to hear our conversation with Andrew tomorrow. That conversation was about the Sinaloa drug cartel and their activities in Chicago, which brought scrutiny to DEA tactics in Mexico's drug war. You can follow Andrew on Twitter at Andrew underscore Kennis. That's K-E-N-N-I-S. One last question for you, Andrew, and as it is with all of our guests, our final question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask you. Might, you might hate <laughs> to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. So is more violence inevitable in El Paso as white supremacy grows here in the United States? Can we expect more violence, more anti-immigrant, more racist violence in El Paso as neo-fascism grows here in the U.S.?
0: No, I'm glad you're asking that question. I don't see it as a hellish question, <laughs> um, but it is definitely, um, you know, not the not the brightest issue in the world either. So perhaps that's what you meant by a, of the, a hellish question. Um, well, you know, it depends a lot. I mean, we're in the midst of an impeachment proceeding that I mean, probably won't wind up being victorious, so to speak, because of the Senate. Um, but that would obviously be a, a big factor because uh, while most of the issues that we talked about had long been problems to the border and are intimately related to the, to the drug war. Um, the one with about my nationalism coming to uh, coming to El Paso with a group being there and the rhetoric being stepped up and, and the massacre having happened for the first time in 100 years, a racially motivated one that is, um, that's definitely very much Trump-like stuff. So, uh, first of all, with the impeachment proceedings, second of all, with the general election last year, that that will have a lot to do with whether or not this kind of stuff is this fiery rhetoric, so to speak, that so clearly drives um, what's going on with white nationalism on the border and beyond in the States these days, that, that will be key factor. But um, you know, a lot of the damage has already been done. So even if Trump is undone somehow by some miraculous impeachment proceeding or even if he does manage to lose the electoral college, uh, the popular vote does seem to be out of his reach this time around. But as we saw the last time around, that doesn't necessarily seal his fate. Even if that does happen, white nationalism has been, the seeds to it have been planted and provoked and, and grown quite significantly. And it's it's hard to say to what extent they would die down if um, Trump lost. So uh, this kind of stuff could still go on in a sort of back potential backlash. And it's something that um, needs to be, Needs to have the kind of the vigilance that it hasn't had um, for the U.S. government. Obviously, uh, you know, the v- law enforcement and um, vigilance over uh, white nationalism has not been a, a very big priority. And in fact, even to a certain extent, there there were funds that were diverted away from that and more toward uh, so-called border security. And so, you know, here we are. So a lot of it basically boils down to those two things. You know, the fate of Trump as well as to what extent, uh, which he's already provoked, this kind of white nationalism manages to stay alive. So uh, time will tell, um, but uh, regardless of what happens with that, the border flex in El Paso de Juarez is is, uh, quite a a crazy place in which to live and uh, has a lot of stuff imposed upon it against his will by forces uh, that are quite big and powerful. So um, certainly I'll be... uh, Covering it for years to come. And uh, lo and behold, we might be on the show uh, talking about it, uh, any one of these issues uh, once again, because the border uh, really rarely does um, cease to be a place of, of incredible uh, forces at work, both politically, economically speaking, and, and certainly with the drug war as well. Uh, and, pl- and by now, and by now, even white nationalism too. So there you go. Yeah, <laughs> the
1: whole nine yards. Uh, uh pleasure having you back on again, Andrew. And I promise that we will have you on sooner than five years from now. That break between two interviews was far too long. Thank you so much for being back on our show. Really appreciate it. And you, people should go check out all of your writing at Alternate. And uh, you can follow Andrew on Twitter at Andrew underscore Kenneth. Thank you so much for being back on our show. Pleasure being on with you, Chuck. Thanks a lot. All right, take care. Live from the nightmare of want, This Is Hell. Join us every Wednesday evening for our weekly meet and greet, which is more a drink and think. This Is Hell office hours at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Avon. Drop by, drink, hang out, watch me drink, get some free This Is Hell advertising stickers and free show related books. That's Wednesday evenings at Carrie's Lounge from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. for This Is Hell office hours. We can check out our new, nearly completed studios and get some This Is Hell merch as well. If you choose, that's every Wednesday at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Avon in Chicago. Come on by, meet other listeners of This Is Hell, meet Mel, our semi-feral cat, every Wednesday. This is Hell Officers at Carrie's Lounge in Chicago's Little India, West Ridge neighborhood. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's This Is Hell. Alex, Jerry, Alex, what's happening on This Is Hell on our two-hour podcast happening Friday, beginning at noon, Chicago time, streaming live.
3: Uh, Friday at 10 a.m.?
1: Did As I say a, before? Yeah, yeah, 10 a.m.
3: Uh, 10 to noon, uh, Andrea Ballesteros is going to be on to talk about her book, A Future History of Water, which uh, I'm guessing is going to be a huge bummer. <laughs> it's going to be really and, depressing. Uh, Thomas Adams will be on to talk about his piece, A Tale of Corruption at the United Auto Workers.
1: And Jeffy is going to be giving a moment of truth, and Alex and I will be back here. We want to thank today's guest, international journalist and researcher Andrew Kennis, who posted the alternate story, How El Paso Became a Natural Target for a Brutal Act of White Supremacist Terror. Thanks to uh, returning guest Adam Kotzko, who is on to talk about his N Plus One magazine article, The Evangelical Mind. You can find our past interviews with both Adam and Andrew at ThisIsHell.com. Actually, you can only find Adam's. Andrew's, you're going to have to... Subscribe to Patreon. This is all on Patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell to hear our interview with him from back in 2014 about the Sinaloa drug cartel and their activities here in Chicago. But Adam's uh, interview that he did with us in the past, last year, one year ago, about his book, Neoliberalism's Demons on the Political Theology of Lake Capital, you can find right now at thisishell.com. We want to thank Ben Wurg. Gaft, who is author of Meat Planet, Artificial Flesh, and the Future of Blood. You can find out more about Ben at his website, org. This week's hangover cure is Spaghetti Aglio e Olio. Although I wouldn't suggest you put olio in anything, olio is disgusting. Sub- subscribe to this is hell on patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell thanks to alex thanks to Ronaldo Magaldi for doing the research and editing uh, not only the rotten history but also giving us our suggestion for our hangover cure this week i'm your bitter blind book broke gap tooth host chuck mertz this is not the media this is hell